What do you think he's got? Tentacles? No research whatsoever. Nobody ever wants to rule an iron fist anymore. <laughs> USA. USA. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that sees no necessity to eat off a tray. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. With Matthew gone, I've no one else to turn to. Uh, I didn't know that you and Matthew were that close. I didn't either. Well, that's really weird, Tom. <laughs> it's quite odd. He is uh, both fictional and annoying. <laughs> Speaking of fictional and annoying, <laughs> welcome back, cousins. Welcome back. Oh my goodness. New cousins, old cousins, in Returning between cousins, cousins. Yeah. All the cousins. The day is here. No, we, we know we Second get- Second cousins twice removed. <laughs> we're all back. We're all back. For a brand new series of Downton Abbey. The fourth one. Can you believe it? I really can't. It is somewhat surprising. I really can. This is the third year uh, of our doing this podcast, I yeah. think. I, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. This is <sighs> How year about three. That? Yeah. Up yours downstairs. Rock yeah. and roll, ready to go. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we welcome all of our cousins. I, I know that there are some people that only listen to the Downton podcast just because I know we always get more downloads for those. Yes. So if you're one of those, welcome back. Uh, and wherever you are in the world, we welcome you. We're up to 125 countries. Wow. That people have, uh, downloaded our podcast a from. A buck and a quarter countries. That is right. And, uh, the two newest as of this week are Bolivia and Iceland. <gasps> Iceland? Yes. Uh, but they have an evil junior peewee league hockey team. I know. That tried to destroy Emilio Estevez. I know, but if they like our podcast, I'm willing to overlook it. That's a great point. <laughs> Uh, so we are changing things up a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. New cousins, you have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Returning veteran cousins. Rather than reading every letter from now on, we are going to choose one letter per week. That will be cousin of the week. We will read it at the top of the podcast, as has been our custom. Right. And uh, that is the change. The only change. Right. But we would love to hear from any and all of you. You can reach us on Twitter or by Carrier Pigeon. Mm-hmm. We are at five, the number five Maggie Smiths. You can search Up Yours Downstairs on Facebook. And you can also send us an old-fashioned telegram via email. We are upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. And we are considering doing a uh, telegram roundup on our very rarely used Tumblr site <laughs> right? Uh, for the letters that we do not read out loud. So be yeah. on the lookout if we decide to go there. Yeah. We may well do it and may even let you know. We, we might. <laughs> Who we're, can uh, we're like the wind. It's hard to say what we might be getting up to. Indeed. Uh, so without further ado, this week's cousin of the week is Lady Amanda, Countess of Greenbank, who writes, What ho, Kelly? What ho, Tom? I was appalled at the lack of telegrams in the last episode. I had most of this one typed up, but unfortunately neglected to send it in time. So I send it to you now with Christmas greetings from Greenbank. First off, I'd just like to say that I found all of your Parades End episodes most enjoyable. It was refreshing to hear you cover a really well-done series, and contrary to what you may think, I did not find any episode to be lacking in laughs. Your mixed opinions as regards Seabatch, Sylvia and the good old sausage, I'm working on a picture of that. It may take a while. I usually only draw anime characters. Your disgust with the horrid Mrs. Douchman, the dear departed idiocy of potty chump stash, repeatedly throwing down glasses in honor of Miranda Richardson's greatness, and of course, the terrifying Roby Tree shall all stay fresh in my memory for many podcasts to come. 
I will say I was a smidge disappointed with the last episode. The weird montage at the end that kept switching from the actual parade's end to Seabatch and Mary Culligan slow dancing while the rest of the battalion of pals danced energetically and sang Mademoiselle from Armentieres to Seabatch and Mary Culligan actually consummating their relationship bothered me. It went on a little too long and kept switching from one clip to another at a pace which kind of made me nauseated. And I'll admit that I thought the ending was too simple and a touch anticlimactic, but then I suppose Sylvia can't go on trying to one-up a one-up forever. (laughs) Oh, and I thought I would mention that in the Parades End novel, Sylvia does divorce Christopher. She and that old general dude do go to India as man and wife, and Christopher and Valentine do get married. Okay. At any rate, sad as I am to see it go, that parade has ended and it's time to move on. A while back, my sister and I were discussing how great it would be if there was a Downton Abbey up yours downstairs tribute band and what titles you might find on the track listing for an album dedicated to this podcast then whilst listening to your da series three wrap-up episodes i heard you kelly bemoan the fact that there wasn't a band out there called the grand canadian trunkadelic (laughs) so my sister and i started thinking up downton based song titles i may have spent a little more time on this than was probably good for me but after weeks and weeks and weeks of brainstorming editing and listening to your episodes for series one and two i give to you meager Christmas gift though it is the mock-up track listing for the imaginary album Purple Beaded Hat by the imaginary Grand Canadian Trunkadelic track one Lady Mary Killed a Turk track two Speed Me Towards Rippin track three Harem Pants track four Luncheon Will Put Them to Sleep track five I Kissed a Farmer track six a nice tall glass of ice cold bitchery parentheses lady mary's theme (laughs) track seven i'm sorry but damn track eight put that in your pipe and smoke it track nine sergeant barrow and the grizzly bear track 10 smoking in the courtyard track 11 tripping mr bates track 12 salty pudding five maggie smith's edition bonus tracks track 13 put that in your pipe and smoke it the dower house remix Track 14, What Does the Patmore Say? (laughs) Track 15, Fake Patrick's Fugue. (laughs) Series 3 and 4 track listing coming soon. So if any musical cousins out there feel inspired by any of these titles, feel free to make it into a song. Wow, this telegram turned out to be longer than I intended, so I'll end it now. Looking forward to the Foresight Saga, and I'm sure there was something else. Yes, now I remember. Downton Series 4. Keep on snarking. With regards, your honorable cousin, Lady Amanda, Countess of Greenbank. P.S. To any who are curious, Greenbank is a small community in rural Pennsylvania known by name only to the Amish and the UPS man. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that, thank you cousin Amanda, uh, yeah. both for your great feedback on our parades and coverage yeah. and that track listing. Absolutely. I, I definitely hope somebody will take up the mantle. Yeah. Uh, if only for what does the Patmore say? <laughs> yeah and boy i'll tell you what a whole lot of crap has happened on this show like wow we are as of the beginning of this episode which we are about to recap in 1922 that's right we're a full 10 years 10 years 10 years in the show right past where we began yeah uh no one looks like they've aged 10 years no not at all looks a bit worse for the wear that's true uh but that may also be makeup yeah it's hard to say and you have to say good on the dowager countess for surviving 10 years from where she started yeah that's a really good point (laughs) (laughs) which was incredibly old (laughs) right so let's get to it oh my gosh i'm so excited 
I know, me it's too. It's finally back. I know. Oh, you guys. <laughs> we watched this. I think it was on Christmas, which yeah. is our, our down tan anniversary. <laughs> our ab anniversary. No. It's our ab anniversary. All right. <laughs> uh, of watching the first episodes of Downton Abbey that we ever watched. Because mm-hmm. we couldn't wait. Yeah. We absolutely couldn't wait. We really couldn't. Oh, we couldn't wait to watch it. And yeah. man, we were not disappointed. We were Except in the ways that we're always disappointed <laughs> exactly. by Downton Abbey. Exactly. It was... But it's, it's just... Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's like sinking into a warm vat of tapioca. <laughs> it's just the best. Yeah. <gasps> All right. So yeah, uh, it starts off with just uh, the Abbey at night, and it uh, does this whole Zoom thing on a single lighted window because at the top of the Julian Abbey. Because Julian Fellows saw a movie <laughs> during the break. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, and we see a bunch of weird shots of like feet and hands and suitcases and envelopes and stuff. We're, we're not seeing this mysterious figure's face for some reason. Her face! <laughs> what did you do to her face? <laughs> uh, we see somebody walking towards a crying baby. Uh, we see Mary lying in bed, awake, uh, and uh, with a picture of her and Matthew next to her. And uh, the the mysterious figure we've been seeing closes a door. Boom. Downton Abbey. <gasps> by Julian Fellows. That's a pretty effective opening sequence. Yeah, it was. Although I imagine in the subsequent episodes we get our, you know, standard credit sequence. I'm, I would hope so. I, I'm like, w- did somebody not dust the chandelier? Right. I'm a little concerned. How is the chandelier doing? Right? <laughs> uh, is you know what about the saloon is that bell still there do they have a saloon right <laughs> i want some sarsaparilla <laughs> you always want sarsaparilla i know i kind of do we cut to mary sitting in her room staring at the fire and i just imagine her internal monologue to be harry potter said i could see matthew's face in this fire <laughs> Uh, Anna is downstairs and she uh, finds said letters on the mantelpiece. Right. And Mary rings the bell. Uh, we find out Mary is in the Queen Caroline room. Yes. For anyone who cares. Right. You know, there's a crap ton of maps out there of like, you know, Middle Earth and Westeros. <laughs> yeah, that's where, true. Where is my blueprint to Downton Abbey? Yeah. Where is my map of the house? It's a good question. I and would buy the shit out of that. I need, I would be surprised if it actually does exist. But well, we simply haven't it. looked. Right. We, yeah. We have once again done no research whatsoever. <laughs> and we're not going to stop until we've done no research at all. <laughs> That's right. Uh, anyway, so Anna's in with uh, Carson and Mrs. Hughes. And Carson looks very flustered and says that he will give this letter to her ladyship. And Anna says that she can dress her ladyship. So... Then we get a tracking shot of Anna going upstairs, and she runs into Thomas. Right. Thomas! Yeah. Uh, and he's like, you know, what's what's all the fuss? And she says that Miss O'Brien's up and left. So I'd like to rescind my previous comment and make it, her bangs! <laughs> what did you do to her bangs? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, anyway, we then see, with more tracking shots, the news travel throughout the house. Thomas tells Jimmy Kent. Ivy overhears that. She goes and tells a random maid who tells other random maids. It was exciting. We're always excited to see the other maids. Yeah, they got lines. Yeah, and uh, then there's just a big hullabaloo in the entrance yeah, hall. Yeah, like which all I'm of like, them gather. Yeah, and I'm like, don't you bitches have work to do? Yeah. Like, those fires aren't going to, like, light themselves. Yeah, like, shouldn't you just all be Twittering as you go about your ordinary <laughs> tasks? Like, no. Uh, upstairs in the bed of Grantham. <laughs> uh, the, 
I wonder if it's still scandalous that they share the bed. I would think not you anymore. You know, I, well, in a later scene, oh yeah, Mrs. Hughes is in there, and she seemed distinctly uncomfortable. Hmm, interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, McGee is very shocked that O'Brien would leave like that, and Lorgy is not. He, yeah, he's saying how she's such a, you know, devious git. Right. And McGee, like, doesn't even deny it. She's just like, but I never thought she'd turn it against me. <laughs> right. Well, it's like this... This is an argument they've been having for the last 10 years, yeah. and Lord Grantham just won. Like yeah, this, He did. Yeah. Drop like, the mic. Yeah. <laughs> Give Isis a bone. It's done. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and they're particularly upset that Susan, Lady Flincher... Oh, well, you know our thoughts on Lady Flincher. <laughs> Indeed. She is the worst, this... with a capital T-W. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but, yeah. but again... She and O'Brien totally deserve each other. Like, let us not forget the time that O'Brien tried to, uh, you know, right. destroy McGee yeah. and succeeded in forcing her to have a miscarriage. Right. Indeed. Uh, anyway, but they're all very upset that, you know, Lady Flincher yeah. took her away. Yeah. I know. I mean, it's good for them. It's, it, it is very odd. Why would O'Brien like Flincher? Why would Flincher like O'Brien? They're both so unlikable. But well, that's I, it. It's you know, too, it's like a double negative. <laughs> I guess so. Well, and look, Lady Flincher really liked the way that O'Brien did hair. Yeah, and O'Brien wanted to go to India. Yeah, I guess that's true. Much like uh, old Sylvia. Yeah. No, fair enough. And so that's that's what's happened. Mrs. Hughes reminds everybody, such as the viewers at home, that this is all foreshadowed. At Dunneagle. And, uh, yeah, O'Brien's off to India, which gives me an opportunity to use my favorite TV trope, which is that she's been put on a bus. Which, you know, I'd like to take this moment. Yes. Because I forget where I've been reading this, but people have been talking, possibly on our Facebook page, mm. possibly in other corners of the internet, about how Julian Fellows seems to, like, take devious glee in killing off people who want to leave his show. Right. And I just don't think that's true. We have a lot of issues with Baron Fellows. We certainly do. And we really want to see him in a death match with eyeliner for Mr. <laughs> Selfridge. Please, oh, please, God, make that happen. Um, no, but I mean, look, in the cases of both Sybil and Matthew, because they're connected to the family by blood, you can't put them on a bus. Right. I mean, exactly. you could have put Sybil on a bus when she married Branson. Right. And that's the only time you could have put her on that bus. Yeah, they could have just gone to Ireland and uh, slowly... You know. Well, you know, never either never been heard from again or just heard just right. in letters and nobody yeah. sees or talks to them anymore. Right. And then with Matthew, there There's, was just no I mean, there was his hands were completely tied. Yeah. He had no choice. Yeah, like Matthew and Downton Abbey were were one. Like yeah. they could not be separated. He was, you know, the sort of weird protagonist. Or yeah. He was he was the catalyst. Yeah. Yeah. In the first series. Right. And I mean, you know, granted I can't say that I wouldn't pull a diva move if I were in Baron <laughs> Fellow's position yeah. and be like, oh, you want off the show? Fine. I'm going to have you die the dumbest death in television history. Right. That makes very little sense. Right. And has nothing to do with the rest of the story. Right. But, you know, he's he's done the best that he can. Yeah. He's now putting the pieces together. And he well, didn't have to kill O'Brien because uh, Siobhan Finnegan. Finnegan? Siobhan Finnegan. Look, I'm just proud of myself because I finally learned how to say Siobhan. Well, hey, okay. More I'm really excited. Yeah. Anyway, so she's on a bus or more likely a slow boat. Right. To India. But nonetheless, she, she can be retrieved if the actor and the writers are ever interested in doing True. so. Like she's still available. Yep. If that, if that works out. Um, yes. Yeah, so let me see Carson 
interrogating everyone in the kitchen and everybody is like oh i didn't know a thing right uh especially alfred <laughs> right because everybody's like you totes new and he says uh he completely like out of character because he was totally thick as thieves with her right in the previous season yeah and he just says oh she may be my aunt but she's a dark horse and mrs patmore goes <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to deny that and i'm like that's completely different than the definition of dark horse that i right have was, been raised to know yeah which like, comes primarily from my childhood obsession with gone with the wind before i realized how incredibly racist it was well yeah but fair enough it's a common you know idiom in american english that does not mean that no it so, means you know the the underdog uh, yeah or, the underdog yeah because that's vivian lee was the dark horse contender ah. for the role of scarlett o'hara even though she actually wasn't it was all very carefully orchestrated publicity stunt <laughs> i could go on <laughs> fair enough uh so up at breakfast edith is also quite upset at lady flincher uh and saying that she would take uh, McGee's ladies made while her daughter was living in the house. Good point. Yeah. They're already doing you a solid by taking <laughs> right. your least favorite family member <laughs> off your hands. Yeah. Speaking of, she arrives and uh, she says she's asked if she had any idea about it. And she's like, well, no, not really. Which, of course, we all know means, yeah, duh. Yeah. <laughs> she totally knew. So Edith is going to London uh, the next day in any case, or she will put an ad in the lady mm-hmm. for a new lady's maid. Rose thinks that that will take forever. Which it will, which because it will. they have to wait for the magazine to go to print and then be delivered to all of the ladies who read it. <laughs> right. And Edith is like, yeah, so? Yeah, this know. is how we do things. <laughs> this is, you know, 1912. <laughs> I was here. Where were you? Dun Eagle. <laughs> um... Uh, Branson asks Lord Grantham if Mary would like to walk the plantations with him that day, which he's apparently going to do. And Lord Grantham's like, no, 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 don't bother. She can't be bothered. She's fine. He then heads out and Rose admits that, yeah, she totally knew. P.S. I love the new breakfast club down here. Oh, yeah. Oh, the new breakfast club, vastly superior to the old breakfast club. (laughs) Indeed. Like, we got Edith, we got Branson, we got Rose. Like, these kids are going to be, you know, writing weird essays to learn (laughs) Grantham before we know it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm I'm also a big fan of... of... We just need to get Judd Nelson in here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think he's outgrown this club. Oh, you know what? Probably Molesley's the Judd Nelson, which kind of ruins the whole thing. (laughs) really does. Yikes. (laughs) up in mary's room anna offers mary a lavender scarf uh and suggests that she might go out right having not heard lord grantham's directive (laughs) do not bother her right uh mary flatly asks for the black one uh clearly they've been playing this game for quite a while (laughs) right nanny rosy cheeks walks in (laughs) with uh baby george and she says that she's going for a walk with him and would mary like to come mary says no and then goes up and says poor little orphan and uh she smooches him and nanny rosy cheeks hightails it out of there anna has finally had enough right anna's like listen i finally got shit of that horrible fucking plot line where my (laughs) husband was in jail and you're really bubbing my stone She says, he's not an orphan. He's got his mother. Mary, oh, listen, guys. Yeah. Dan Stevens leaving the series might be the best thing ever. Agreed. Because Mary is in bitch form with a capital B. Oh, man. Oh, just, oh, it's inspiring. I love it. Uh, So Mary says, he isn't poor either come to that. Yeah. Which, like, two points, Mary. (laughs) Right. She's like, I'll use hyperbole 
if I want to. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Anna double checks and makes sure that Mary doesn't mind that she's going to be also dressing McGee. And, you know, Mary's like, why would I mind? I'm not planning a trip around the world. Yeah. And she has, this was my favorite detail in this scene. She had picked up a book right. as if to like communicate that, oh, hey, I'm going to do something. And then as soon as Anna's gone, she like puts the book down yeah. and goes right back into staring in the middle distance. Yeah. She's like, listen, I had a long day of staring planned. You're really cutting into it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty. Now I'm going to have to stay up late to <laughs> keep all my staring in. You think this just happened? <laughs> The Dowager Countess uh, encounters Old Mosley in uh, the graveyard. Yeah, she's looking for Mr. Travis. Yeah. And I wanted to be like, Baron Julia killed him. (laughs) He's the one in Matthew's grave. (laughs) Uh, Wherever he is, he's not helping the Dowager Countess with the bring in to buy sale. Is what she Which wanted sounds to about. like a really fun time. Yeah, and a, a nice little fundraising idea. Yeah, like, yeah, clever. No, oh, she's so good at her job of being the dowager countess. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, like she takes it seriously. She takes it very seriously. She could really learn those young whippersnappers a thing or two. Frankly, <laughs> yeah, always gallivanting off to London, wearing sweaters. <laughs> uh, but mostly is watching Matthews. A gravestone being put up, which apparently means that it has been six months. Yeah, apparently it takes six months for the grave to settle. Right. Which is a morbid, uh, but useful fact. <laughs> right. Uh, we learned that Molesley Jr. has not yet found a job. Of course he hasn't. Right. Uh, of course, his previous job having been killed in a car crash. So... And, uh, yeah, he's been staying at Downton, uh, but not making any money or... Uh, being particularly useful, just hoping he doesn't get kicked out. He's just molesing it up. Yeah, molesing around. Probably getting drunk. <laughs> uh, the Dowager Countess thinks that he ought to be able to get a job as he is a trained valet, but old Mr. Molesley points out that it is a changing world. Oh, P.S. I'm totally shipping the Dowager and Molesley. <laughs> I mean, uh, Dowsley? <laughs> Dowsley. Yeah. Dowsley? All right. Mowager? <laughs> Mowager is certainly funnier. Well, then we'll go with the funny one, because this is a comedy podcast. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i as much in favor of Mowager as anybody else, but I don't know that uh, Maggie Smith is going to be that quite that progressive. Oh, she's certainly not. Listen, I, you know, I would write a very gentle fan fiction where mm. they, you know, have some sort of, like, meeting of the minds, and they're like, oh, in a different world, and then, you know, it's like the end. Right. Got it. That's it. Okay. I'm not even going to write it now because I'd ruin the ending. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they don't bang. Sweet. Uh, just in front of the house, Thomas greets Nanny Rosie Cheeks and a junior nanny. Right. Or possibly a maid. Maybe a maid. I think it's a maid. Okay. That's what I think. Okay, that's fair. We don't uh, see her again in the episode. Thomas so. is wearing a very ill-fitting Hamburg, and I'm very upset <laughs> by how small his head looks. Or how big his head looks compared to, like, I was like, what? Who put you in this hat? He looks like the hat can't even stay on his head. It's like, listen, this is the Downton Homburg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so he's saying hi to Sibian, kind of, you know, dandling at her with his finger. Right. And then Nanny Rosie Cheeks demands that he not touch the children without her permission. And he's like, uh, I just want to remind you that I knew this lady's mother. Yeah. And he is like, he goes into, he, he pulls a full Thomas on oh, her. Oh yeah. Like, with the whole. Cause she's like, uh, yeah, that doesn't matter. He's like, oh yeah, it actually totes does. Yeah. 
and anyway, but I thought initially, and this doesn't necessarily prove out, uh-huh. I assumed that she didn't want him touching the baby because he's gay. Hmm. Interesting. But then literally nothing about his gayness comes out for the rest of this episode. Right. I mean, I, for one, had completely forgotten that he was gay. <laughs> How could you forget that well, he was gay? Well, I mean, gay? I didn't forget. If oh, anybody... everybody else knew that he was gay. Right. Like, if you had asked me, I would have said, yeah, but it He's just... He's so gay. <laughs> He probably thinks this song is about him. And <laughs> I, he's correct. I was just thinking about how bitchy he was. Which Well, he was very bitchy. And yeah. I mean, it also, I mean, child rearing at the time would be, you know, fodder for a... I think we already... Didn't we already do child rearing? Hey. You would think. Cousins. <laughs> if anybody wanted to make us a spreadsheet of all the topics we've covered on Fashion Backwards and Tom Repeats History... I would... Uh, I, yeah, you'd be doing us a solid. It would actually be super helpful. It would be really, really helpful. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, you know, uh, there, you know, there was this like very, and we see it again later in the episode. There's this very strict uh, regimen of like when the babies can be touched and when they can see their parents, and mm-hmm. like the nanny is, you know, God for all intents and purposes. Right, right, yeah. So I mean, it's I, it appears to be that kind of thing, but uh, there's no love lost between Nanny Rosie Cheeks and Thomas. Yeah, clearly. Uh, in the servants' dining hall, Daisy is talking about how she can't believe that Miss O'Brien would be so thoughtless. Uh, which, like, hello? Yeah. Have you, it's been 10 years, Daisy. <laughs> right. Mrs. Patmore is like, ah, uh, yeah, I totally believe it. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is Daisy 10 years later. Look. Like, what was she, six when it started? <laughs> <laughs> the math here is troubling. <laughs> Indeed. Just to quote our sources, that is from the very funny web series, Vag Magazine. Indeed. uh, Which we cannot recommend highly enough. We really can't. Jimmy Kent is sympathetic to O'Brien, wanting to go off and have an adventure with Oh, so he's the new Ethel, huh? Uh, I guess so. Boo! Jimmy Kent is so pointless. Yeah. Uh, Like, if he's not going to blow Thomas, I do not have time for this guy. Yeah. I'd just like to state for the record that Jimmy Kent can suck it. (laughs) (laughs) And by it, we mean Thomas's penis. Well, sure. Or whatever. What do you mean, or whatever? <laughs> I don't know. What do know. you think he's got? Tentacles? <laughs> he's got some sort of, like, Cthulhu cock? <laughs> no, that's not what I think. I just don't care who or what Jimmy sucks. <laughs> uh, as, long as, I... he, as long as it keeps his mouth shut. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. He also accuses Alfred of knowing all about... Uh, O'Brien's plans. Which, like, look at his dumb ginger face. Yeah. Come on, he knows nothing. Alfred barely knows that his name is Alfred. Right. Like, come on. <laughs> he doesn't even know that his real name is Ugly Landry. <laughs> That's right. He's hardly a criminal mastermind. <laughs> or even, you know, a slight awkwardness mastermind. <laughs> right. Uh, Anna and Bates, who have nothing horrible to discuss. <gasps> you uh, guys, oh my god. <laughs> it is so refreshing. Yeah. I like them again. Yeah. I really do. Look, wow. it, yeah. I don't know. It, you know, it may only last this episode. Right. But I was like, oh, just nice, cute couple being nice and cute. Mm-hmm. Oh, not having horrible, like, crime Vera Bates related awfulness to contend with. Right. This is lovely. No blue prison. Right. Oh. Yeah. Oh, you guys. It's as if I've been set free. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but they talk about that Mary's still, like, bumming around. I'm I'm just so curious. I want to see the prequel. Like, what were the previous six months like? I also and look, and this has a this is yeah. a Baron Fellows touch, oh, right? 
but it's like has anyone dealt with anything that's at all have we even discussed this or is everybody just now noticing that she's like mega depressed yeah it wasn't you know they're all like boy until o'brien left i really didn't notice that anything had changed (laughs) her bangs cast a long shadow Daisy sympathizes with Nanny West uh, for some reason. I don't know why it came up. But she says that it must be tough to be a nanny because you're not exactly a servant, but you're not exactly one of them. Like Reggie Raj Singh exactly. in Manor House. Mm-hmm. Except he wasn't a nanny. He was a tutor. Right. But same principle applies. Fact checkers. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, it, Nanny West seems clearly to be, you know, on the servant side of the line where – Reggie Raj thing was True. less so. Well, but we don't see her taking meals or anything. Well, I mean, we just never see her interacting with the family. Yeah, that's But, true. I mean, we know she doesn't have to sleep in the servants' quarters, obviously. Right, right. And she doesn't appear to, you know, I guess she takes her meals with the children. Right. So, yeah. she's just off. Man, what a life. Right. Like, yeah. like, not just the, you know, neither up nor downstairs, just the isolation of it. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. being a preschool teacher 24 hours a day. Yeah. With, like, one kid. Exactly. Two in this case. Yeah. But. Uh, Thomas comes in and complains about her and how she tried to boss him around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bates says, what did she think? Maybe Perhaps she thought you were a servant. Uh-huh. And somebody, I think it was Alfred, somebody dumb is like, but he is a servant. And, Bates, and we all smack ourselves in the head. <laughs> right. But Bates says, don't, don't let him know. He might die of shock. <gasps> ah! Yeah. This is great. Yes, it is. Outside, Branson and Lord G are walking near uh, livestock and such, discussing how they'll meet the death duties, a.k.a. estate taxes, on Matthew. Branson wants to wait for Mary to, you know, snap the fuck out of it. (laughs) Uh, But she only has a life interest in one-third of Matthew's half of the estate and his property. Right. Uh, and the rest is George's. Matthew did not make a will. Yes. So So Mary is is only allowed, you know, what the law permits which uh what with the entailment and all we all know that british uh estate (laughs) law is not particularly sympathetic to women a fun fact i read actually this past week i think it was either this past week or this past year i saw in just like little news quiz that um they are now considering passing a law that will allow noble titles to pass into female that is correct they're calling it the downton abbey law yeah so how about that so well done baron julian i seriously doubt this was your intention (laughs) right he was like why aren't they doubling down on the male lineage eyeliner i assume this is your fault anyway branson wants to wait for mary uh but lord grantham yeah in his infinite wisdom (laughs) right Thinks he should manage everything. Yeah. Because he's proven so adept. <laughs> right. He, and l- let's also be clear, he claimed to have learned his lesson at previous times. Like, now he's acting like this never happened. Right. He's acting like the Grand Canadian Funkadelic is just, <laughs> you know, a saucy band. <laughs> right. He's acting like he didn't, you know, uh, almost ruin the estate right multiple times right and have to bail himself out multiple times right and oh my god you know kill his daughter that time yeah oh my god (laughs) wow (sighs) anyway uh branson oh god okay so branson's like you know lady mary you know loves matthew very much right and lord grantham 
because this open wound needs more salt. Yeah. He says the price of great love is uh, is great is pain. great pain when one of you dies. Yeah. Props to Alan Leach for his face. Yeah. Because he looks like a souffle that someone kicked <laughs> in the nuts. <laughs> And just, yeah. he's like, yeah, uh, I know. Yeah. I remember you had that daughter that you killed and <laughs> right. I loved her so much that, that we like, we, we were married, married baby yeah. is around. Yeah. And she again, lives still. And again, that one was your daughter. Yeah. Who you'd known your whole life. Yeah. She was definitely your, like you made that. Yeah. And then yeah. she died, but like, you don't care. Right. Uh, anyway, again, uh, Lord Grantham. Oh my God! Right? Can we just call Downton Abbey from now on? How Lord Grantham is the worst, <laughs> right. Abbey? Like <laughs> Grantham knows least. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, I can't. I can't. Yeah, I well, can't with him. You're just gonna have to. I can't with him. He can't I don't stop. Won't stop. At what point? <laughs> at what point in the previous three series has he done anything? <laughs> Has he done anything I, that wasn't, in fact, horrible? I feel like there was once, but I can't remember when it was. I posted on Facebook that he did suggest that they get rid of O'Brien that time. <laughs> but, I mean, just look. If you want your problems to get exponentially worse, tell Lord Grantham about it. Right. You know, he'll testify against you in court <laughs> when you think that he's there to testify for you. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Listen. Plenty more of this, exactly. I'm sure. Oh, the, we have only watched the one episode, but I have no doubt that his boneheadedness will continue to be a plot point <laughs> for the foreseeable future. But again, it's not just his boneheadedness. It's that, like, as goes Baron Fellows, so goes, like, yeah. I don't think that Baron Fellows has any idea what a terrible person he is. It's it's hard to say. I, I kind of go back seem, and forth. Yeah. He does seem to like be setting the women up to be really like competent. Yeah. But I just, I don't. Yeah. I don't, it's begrudging. Okay. Yeah. It's begrudging. Yeah. I think, I think he knows that Lord Grantham is wrong about everything and, and is making that way intentionally. I think he also just likes him a lot. Like, yeah. As a I, character. Yeah. I mean, look, Hugh Bonneville's great. Yes. Oh, again, if you yeah. didn't see this on Facebook, we watched on PBS. There's a kid special called Mr. Stinky. <laughs> right. Or I think just Mr. Stink. Mr. Stink. Yeah. Yes. Mr. Stink starring Hugh Bonneville, yeah. which we were like, what the hell is this? Right. And then we got completely sucked in. Yeah. And it actually was really phenomenal. It really was. So particularly if you have kids. Yeah. Uh, it's a Christmas special. So maybe, you know. Maybe you want to wait. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. It's still technically Christmas until Monday. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a day. A day. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was really good in that. And I, I mean, I, it made me realize how much he kind of takes one for the team in Downton Abbey, the series. Oh, totally. Like, he totally makes himself look bad. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's hard to separate the actor from the character. It's true. Um, well, but I mean, at the same time, when he was playing Mr. Stink, like, he still had that sort of puffed up Hubonaville-ness. Right. right, but he just had such a, like, edge to him. He did have a much greater edge and, you know, emotions. Yeah. Which Lord Grantham certainly does not have. <laughs> right. Although he proclaims that he does. Yes. Well, well he knows that he should. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what you humans call feelings. <laughs> Can't say I approve. So Mosley is in Carson's office, uh, standing on the carpet in front of his desk. 
And essentially what is happening is that Carson is kicking him out of the house. He's like, it's been six months. It's not fair to his lordship for you to keep, you know, mooching off of us. <laughs> you know, he's just going to waste all that money anyway. It <laughs> might as well go into Molesley's mouth. Well, I mean, that's true. But uh, yeah, like Carson is uh, very... He's very detached. Yeah, he is. And Molesley's like, well, I guess I could go stay with my dad. And Carson says, what a good idea. Yeah. And he gets up and leaves. Uh, Mrs. Patmore sees Molesley looking all Molesley-like and uh, is like, oh, cheer up. It might not happen. And he's like, it already has. Molesley's like the Falstaff of Downton Abbey, except that he's no fun. <laughs> all right. I don't know what. Look, I was <laughs> trying for something and it didn't work. They're, you know, they can't all be winners, Tom. No, you're right. They can't. They really can't. Edit that out. <laughs> I'll, I'll see. I hate you. <laughs> In the library with the candlestick, <laughs> McGee announces that she's going to Thirsk, well, which sounds like a place in Russia. It does. Edith is walking down to the village to, te- to check on Isabel. And uh, Lord Grantham tells her to invite Isabel up to the house to see George or whatever any time. Right. And then Rose wants to go down with Edith. And Edith's like, uh, yeah, I don't think Isabel wants to see the likes of you, uh, yeah. maid stealer accomplice. <laughs> but Rose is like, uh, hey, calm the F down. I, I want to see that old bitty. Yeah, I just want to go to the village in my jaunty hipster clothes. <laughs> all right, so just pipe down. Yeah. Rose is like, I've never even met Isabel. Like, <laughs> Who? <laughs> right. Uh, McGee then tells Edith she has some errands, some errands for her in London. <laughs> and uh, Edith says that Mr. Gregson is giving a party for her to introduce her to his literary friends. Yes. Uh, so that's still going. Lord Grantham gives a pretty solid eye roll. <laughs> yeah. Now here, refresh my memory. Why did he not like that guy? Gregson? Yeah. Well, I think it's mainly just because he's a publisher. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. I think that's all it is. I okay. could be wrong, but I think that's his whole... Well, guess what, Dingleberry? <laughs> uh, you're the one who told old Sir Anthony, my arm doesn't work good, Stralin, right. that he was too old for her. So I think you can keep your eye rolls to yourself. See, that's something I forget. Yet another thing that yeah. he ruined. Look at him go. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> A rose heads down to the village, wearing like a sweater. Oh man, look, Gibson girl is going to be rough this season. It y'all. is. It is going to yeah. be so hard because I mean, like Edith won't stop. No, like, like can't damn. stop. Yeah, she is amazing looking, but Rose is bringing this whole other thing. Yeah, this very shabby chic. I mean, it's like the difference between like modcloth.com and like Bloomingdale's. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's you know, they're both just killing it. Yeah, killing it. Yeah. Uh, so Rose walks into, uh, well, we assume this is the post office, and says that she wants to put a card in the window. We've been to the post office before, though, and it was a dude. That's true. Anyway. Well, it's been 10 years. Hey, that dude very well could have died. Yeah, All right. Did. Anyway. Uh, wherever it is, she wants to put a card in the window advertising for a job. The postmistress says, uh, what sort of job? And she won't say for some reason. And it's like, I guess it doesn't matter. All right. That'll be sixpence. And it's like, she's... You're going to write the job on the card that you put in the window, like the postman's... Why are you... Boo! Yeah. No stars for this scene. <laughs> right. And it just felt like like Baron Fellows wanted this to be a mystery for a minute, but... It's not. Who cares? She's wearing a great sweater. Yes. Down at Isabel's, Edith says that Isabel should see more of George, presumably meaning like any. Right. Isabel complains about British inheritance law... Uh, and says, you know, that uh, 
poor little baby, Rich's Croesus, with a mother that who... That was uh, almost passed over. Yeah, which is a little excessive. Yeah. She does have a sixth of the estate and also is... Oh, I thought she meant passed over in terms of, like, is almost dead. Oh, no, I, I assumed it meant that, that she That makes been... actually a lot more yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway... Isabel is very surprised that Matthew didn't make a better arrangement, uh, as are we all, frankly. <laughs> right. He was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. Come on, dude. Like, Julian Fellows, you can, like, make excuses all you want, but there ain't no way that guy didn't have a will. Right. As soon as he found out that he was heir to Downton. Yeah. I'm sure. Anyway, look. Yeah. He, he should have done all that. When spe- I mean, you know, while Mary was pregnant, like, there's this baby coming. There's like, those- literally any time. Up until the dumbest car crash ever. Right. Like, he could have been drafting it in the car, and that would have been a compelling reason for him to die. Like, I know that Baron Fellows thinks... Don't that- draft your will and drive. <laughs> that would have been... I would have liked that. Yeah. Um, but Baron Fellows seems to think that the only reason anybody watches the show is for inheritance law issues. So, But don't you see, if we don't have inheritance law, we're going to lose the entire audience. <laughs> We'll just have sex and relationships and all this other boring nonsense. <laughs> Edith offers to help Isabel uh, with what? I'm not sure. Yeah, just uh, anything she can but do. But Isabel delivers a very heartbreaking mini monologue about yeah. how, you know, Matthew was her only child and, you know, she's been a widow for many years. And when your only child dies, you're not anything really yeah. anymore. And she's just getting used to that. Yeah. Uh, Edith tries to remind her that she's a grandmother and that she'll be a great one. And uh, Isabel limply, like, strokes Edith's cheek. Right. It's, like, more like Downer Abby. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much a bummer. Yeah. To see Isabel like this. In the Carson cave, Mrs. Hughes brings in the afternoon post. And Carson takes a look at the letter he has gotten and gets very angry about it and crumples it up and throws it out. He's like, not this again. <laughs> And he then tells Mrs. Hughes to make sure that the upholsterer, uh, to, to summon him when the upholsterer comes, to, because he needs to make sure the guy understands the tapestry he's dealing with before he starts hammering nails into everything, and he storms out. Mrs. Hughes is like, well, I could do that. <laughs> right. Well, I just, uh, I feel for Mrs. Hughes, because this is like a classic, like, glass ceiling situation, because she's nowhere near as temperamental as Mr. Carson. Yeah. But she can never, like, overrule him. Yeah. And be like, hey, no. You're being, I can't do a Scottish accent. <laughs> right. Very hard. Uh, I'm trying, cousins. I'm really trying to We're do the human. Mrs. Hughes impersonation that I know you all crave. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's just got to be, you know, I guess she's very zen about it, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they've been in the same relationship for, you know, over we don't 10 know years. how long. Yeah. But a long time. Well, since Lady Mary was a very young child, Carson's been there. We don't right. know exactly when Mrs. Hughes came. Right. But she was wasn't she a housemaid there? I think I believe so. she moved. Yeah, up. She I was think you're right. Internally, yeah, yeah. Uh, in any case, yeah. Uh, so she then goes and takes that letter that so angered Mr. Carson out of the trash and uncrumples it. Which, and I think you know, I think we we somewhat disagree on this. I really don't think that you should read other people's mail, and I think that it's kind of Mr. Carson's business how he wants to deal with that. And Who disagrees with you? Well, I don't know. You seem to be more in favor of the meddling as the oh, episode I goes on. Oh, I just like meddling. Look, Tom, it's a fictional universe. Well, In general, no. I get mad when you read my mail. 
and we're married. <laughs> that's, that's true. And I have no interesting mail coming in whatsoever. Yeah, there's this. It's the 21st century. Oh, but my Merrill Lynch misses, will you? <laughs> Another mysterious figure stares at the post office window and sees the card advertising for a lady's maid. It says, wanted, first-rate ladies maid, skilled at sewing and arranging hair. Application and references to be sent in envelope, addressed to the postmistress, ladies maid position. Yes. It's a witch. <laughs> She's studying to become a lady's maid. Right. She goes inside and uh, the, the post office lady is like, oh, I'm just closing up, love. And she's like, who's advertising for the lady's maid? And I love the post office lady because she's like, uh, this is Downton. What <laughs> right. do you think? Yeah. Anyway, listen, the first time we watched this, we didn't realize who this was. Right. So thoroughly had <laughs> our memories erased all knowledge of her. Rejected, I would go so far yes. as to say. Blacked out. Yeah. That we, for a few brief moments, or, you know, an hour or so, we were blissfully... We were like, ooh, who's this sassy young witch? Right. With her witch nose. (laughs) Yeah. But it is, in fact, Edna Braithwaite. Boo! Of the whore Braithwaite. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, You're thinking of the skank Braithwaite. (laughs) That is a much better point, yes. They all live in Thirsk. (laughs) Up in McGee's room, uh, Mrs. Hughes, who is ladies mating for her, uh, asks after Isabel, um, and McGee says that, you know, she's not doing great. And McGee also says that she doesn't know if she would be able to comfort Isabel because if Sybil had been an only child when she died, McGee thinks that she would have died. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's rough. Mrs. Hughes doesn't think so, though. And I'm inclined to agree with Mrs. Hughes. Right. Mrs. Hughes says she would have kept on for the baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Lord G comes in, and they both, you know, stop talking. And that's, this is why yeah. I think, I mean, and it's not that it's, I think it's probably less scandalous at this point. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, they're all technically from this older generation, and that this is this is weird, and also she's not a lady's maid. Right, right. Mrs. Hughes, I don't think, has ever been a lady's maid. Hard to say, but I don't, I don't know think that so that's the progression. Either. Yeah, but uh, so you know, Lord G comes in and she's like, oh, "Yeah, I'm done here. Yeah. He's out. <laughs> he's out." He then begins talking with McGee about how he thinks that he should be managing George's property. <sighs> I am rolling my million. eyes so hard right now. It's like I've come up with a plan to purchase ten million scratch-off tickets. <laughs> 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 um yeah so mcgee is skeptical and thinks that you know that mary should be handling it that she's george's guardian yeah she's co-owner of that baby right you know what she's not she's sole she is sole owner of that baby uh but and that baby's rich as croesus he is rich as croesus so by the transitive axiom (laughs) so is mary yeah mary's doing fine and croesus wise (laughs) right uh and and should certainly be involved. Uh, McGee can't believe that Lord Grantham would push her out, and he says he's not pushing her out, that she was never in. Uh, he is such a dick. He is quite the dick. I hate him. Yeah. Uh, but he says that he worked with Matthew, and he now owes it to him to work for his son. Like, don't you think working with as many sentient individuals as possible <laughs> on this, given your track record, right, might be sensible? He does not think that, and for some reason, McGee does not punch him. Right? <laughs> I think she wants to punch him a lot. I think well this I think of, her love for him is waned. 
Well, he did kill her daughter. <laughs> that's that's right, which is tough. And you know, she was she definitely had a disapproving look oh, in this scene. She was by she far. was giving him the McGee bitch face for sure. Mm-hmm. Downstairs, uh, a lot of letters arrive. Mrs. Hughes had forgotten that it was St. Valentine's Day because yes. she's saying, oh, I don't know when people have enough time to write in the middle of the week. This is terrible. Yeah. I should just stop. Apparently so. Uh, I mean, not that I could do better. It's not happening. Yeah. Uh, Carson did remember that it was Valentine's Days and he wasn't always a stranger to romance. Yeah. Which uh, I want to hear about that, Carson. I, I, I think we might. I hope we do. Yeah. Daisy almost did not get a Valentine's card, but Carson had it mixed in with all of his bills. Uh, Anna and Bates both have secret admirers, and they smooch. And you guys, it yeah. is like the last three years didn't even happen. Yeah, it's I very shouldn't cute. say la- the last two years. The last two years, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Daisy steps aside to read her Valentine. Yes, and she is very happy. She's extremely happy. Yeah. Now, Mrs. Hughes says it's a lot of letters for a Tuesday, and I just wonder, like, kind of honestly wonder, what day would they usually get letters if they get them? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Regardless. Yes. Guess what time it is. Why, it's time for one of our recurring segments. It is. Boy, it's been a long time. I know. You forgot how you're supposed to have a cute intro for it. (laughs) Right. I did, and I don't have a cute intro. (sighs) Maybe next week, cousins. (laughs) Uh, But in any case, it is time for Kelly to do... Fashion backwards. Yes. Your resident Valentine's vixen. There you go. Jerk. <laughs> Sorry. So we're going to do a little history of St. Valentine's Day and talk about the evolution of Valentine's cards, uh, which was kind of a very British thing for a long time. Hmm. Uh, St. Valentine, the day, is named for three potential martyrs, uh, and it's only an official feast day in the Anglican Communion, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Lutheran Church. The Catholics downgraded it to local veneration uh, in 1969. Hmm. So if you were expecting a big to-do on St. Valentine's Day, sorry, it's too close to St. Blaise Day. Okay? Oh, wow. You need to calm down. It's true. Uh, People need their throats blessed. In Brazil, though, the feast of St. Valentine's is celebrated on June 12th, which mm. I thought was interesting. Mm. According to legend, in order to remind them of God's love and encourage them to remain faithful Christians, St. Valentine is said to have cut hearts from parchment, giving them to soldiers that he would perform uh, marriage ceremonies for, Hmm. even though at the time they were not permitted by whichever horrible Roman emperor uh, to get married, because he thought single men made better soldiers, Hmm. that he would perform these illegal weddings for them. Hmm. Uh, But he would give these cards to the soldiers and other persecuted Christians, And so that's a possible origin of the widespread use of hearts on St. Valentine's Day. Also, on the evening before Valentine was to be executed, uh, the legend goes that he wrote the first Valentine card himself. It was addressed to the daughter of his jailer, Asterius, who he had cured of blindness, as saints are wont to do. Oh, nice. And he signed the letter, uh, Your Valentine. There's also a rumor that's been going around for a long time that St. Valentine's Day was kind of instituted by Pope Galatius or Galatius Galatius oh, wow. let's call the whole thing Galatius <laughs> that he abolished the Roman fertility rite of Lupercalia ah. which took place from February 13th through the 15th and then replaced it with St. Valentine's Day but that's actually just like a dirty dirty lie oh, apparently yeah. all right the day was first associated with married love by Geoffrey Chaucer and pals during the High Middle Ages. Oh. He wrote a poem called The Lovebirds, and it probably referred to St. Valentine of Genoa. Uh, and then 
there were three other guys, Autun de Grandson, John Gower, and a knight called Pardo. That's his name. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was from Valencia. They also wrote poems about birds mating on St. Valentine's Day. But because it's really hard to date you know, sequentially things that were written in the Middle Ages. We um, have no real way of knowing who came up with it first. Okay. And Chaucer's the most famous, so he wins that game. All right. Uh, something to remember for people who are obsessed with copyright law. <laughs> History, don't care about copyright. <laughs> so the practice of actually giving cards and flowers and candy and all that jazz became popular in 18th century England. Although Samuel Pepys... Uh, also mentioned it in his diaries in the mid-1600s. During the 18th century, if a man was particularly smitten with a woman, he might declare it to the world by pinning to his sleeve a heart-shaped piece of paper with the name of his beloved written on it. And then it was this custom that led to the expression, wearing one's heart on one's sleeve. And a woman might achieve the same with respect to the man she liked, and she would wear a charm called a love bag, near her heart and uh peeps actually records this even though he was writing in the 17th century not the 18th century mm. and here mrs t showed me my name upon her breast as her valentine which will cost me 20 shillings the website i got all this off does not explain why it will cost her 20 shil- will cost him 20 shillings i can right. really assume she was a prostitute i guess so but like is that that was like when you were a prostitute could you force somebody to like patronize you Just i don't like, know man that's like i oh, got this heart bag Pay up, buddy. I should read the diaries of Samuel Pepys, and maybe I would find out. Yeah. He was a terrible person. Yeah, you'll find out some horrible things about humanity. (laughs) So the roots of Valentine's Day go back all the way to CE 496, which is when Pope Galoshes did his thing. uh, Right, right. Instituting it as an actual saint's day. Uh, But there's a custom that began, they think, in the Middle Ages that then became extremely popular by the 18th century. Uh, the custom was called drawing names because they were very creative. <laughs> and this account comes from born in Antiquitates Vulgaris from 1725. He says, It is a ceremony never omitted among the vulgar to draw lots, which they term Valentines, and on the eve before Valentine Day. The names of a select number of one sex are by an equal number of the other put into some vessel, and after that, everyone draws a name, which is called their valentine, and is also looked upon as a good omen of their being man and wife afterwards. And I didn't get completely into it, but people got really, really seriously invested in this. Wow. And would do all of these, like, folk spells, basically, Uh to try and, like, get the right person. Okay. Well, because at first I was like, so this is like a key party, but no, it's more like throwing a bouquet at the wedding. Exactly. I mean, like, it didn't always end in marriage, but it was, you know, it was kind of like a very, like, you know, makeshift matchmaker. Like, uh, hey, (laughs) what if we put these two together? (laughs) That would be neat. (laughs) Mass-produced greeting cards replaced handwritten notes starting in the 19th century, and the mass-produced cards offered the opportunity to give Valentines anonymously, as we see in this episode of Downton Abbey. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the verses printed on them could be significantly racier than what you would write uh, yourself. Because no no one, even if you did that, someone could recognize your hand. Uh And this way you could just send someone something and be like, you know, I want to tweak your nipple. (laughs) And they would be like, fine with that, I guess. (laughs) Or at least they couldn't like... Right. You could be like, uh, man, that that might not have been me. Or, you know, but maybe they would be excited and be like, hey, did you want to tweak my nipple? And you could be like, yeah, I totally do. <laughs> 1840 is kind of the year that the card companies rebranded Valentine's Day mm. uh, when we talk about, you know, the greeting card <laughs> industry starting holidays. That is actually what happened here. Yeah. Uh, in, in the sense that we, 
you know, celebrate it in that way. Right, right. Um, the first pre-printed cards did not reach America until 1847. They were produced by a woman named Esther Howland, whose father was kind of a small-time, you know, printer and publisher. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, you know, did her whole business. And, I mean, cards used to be extremely elaborate. I mean, stores would stock special lace and ribbon and you know it was it was kind of the way that we see things at christmas now uh-huh, uh that uh-huh. was how kind of elaborate everything was yeah and in america though valentine's cards did not really take off until 1865 following the civil war hmm. and i didn't see a ton of reason for that but it stands to reason to me that you know it would have been a hell of a lot easier to mail something yeah. When the country's not at war. One and, you think. know, if you're no longer pitting brother against brother, people are <laughs> going to be a lot more willing to send out Valentines. <laughs> Indeed. So the European folk traditions that we've kind of discussed about St. Valentine and St. Valentine's Day, they have been downplayed by the modern Anglo-American customs and, you know, American-American customs. Right, right. That connect the day with romantic love. But there are some associations connecting the saint with the advent of spring and, you know, the customs that we associate with it now uh, did originate in the UK, but there are still some, like, weird regional customs that are practiced there. In Norfolk, there's a character called Jack Valentine, who oh. knocks on the rear door of houses, leaving sweets and presents for children. And uh, although he was leaving treats, many children were scared of him, much like Krampus. <laughs> and then in, actually, Slovenia, this is the only sort of non-Anglo... Uh, uh-huh. country i'll be discussing however i would recommend that everybody check out the wikipedia page on saint valentine's day <laughs> yeah because they break it down by all of these different countries uh-huh. and there are countries where there's a significant anti-valentine's day sentiment hmm. particularly islamic countries which makes perfect sense right right um yeah but it was just really fascinating i i never thought of valentine's day of as having this really interesting backstory yeah yeah but in slovenia saint valentine or zdravko <laughs> was one of the saints of spring. He was a saint of good health and the patron of bee pe- beekeepers and pilgrims. <laughs> There's a proverb that says St. Valentine brings the keys of roots and that plants and flowers start to grow on February 14th. So it's kind of like Groundhog Day yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, it has also been celebrated as the day when the first work in the vineyards and in the field commences. It's also said that birds propose to each other or marry on that day. Presumably that's a Chaucer leftover. Right. Another proverb says Valentine is the first spring state and Valentine's Day uh, has only recently been celebrated as the day of love. The day of love used to be March 12th, hmm. St. Gregory's Day or February 22nd, St. Vincent's Day. And the patron of love is actually St. Anthony, whose day is celebrated on June 13th. Huh. So it's relatively recent. I mean, again, yeah. considering the fact that like, there's 2000 years of, yeah. you know, Christian history with these saints. The recent is a relative term. Right, right. It was harder for me to find information about Valentine's Day in the 1920s because in 1929, there was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So that kind of ruined every Google search that I tried. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, However, they do say that there was a resurgence in the 1920s in Valentine's card giving, again, potentially because of the end of the war. Right, right. Uh, You know, just people have more disposable income and the males are a bit more reliable. Yeah. So that may explain, at least, you know, in the back of his addled mind, why Baron Julian. <laughs> included it here yeah uh, but that's you know it's an unsubstantiated claim uh that that 
a resurgence happened. That mm-hmm. was just kind of hearsay on this website. Mm-hmm. But cards reached the height of their elaborateness in guess which era, the Victorian era. <laughs> right. uh, and, you know, sort of the onset of World War One caused a drastic simplification in style, more like the very simple cards that we see in this episode versus, you know, they had things that like opened up into music boxes and, you know, yeah. fans that became a card and just like all of this crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, so thanks to Wikipedia and about.com for providing me with a lot of this information. Mm-hmm. Uh, also thanks to Ben Miller, who has an excellent website called Out of This Century, oh. which I recommend on a number of topics. He goes into a lot of different time periods and customs. Yeah. Uh, not quite as awesome as Evangeline Holland's Edwardian Promenade, but still fantastic. So definitely check that out if you are interested in learning more about history. Okay. Which brings us back yes. to our episode on this ill-fated St. Valentine's Day. <laughs> Edith is going upstairs reading a Valentine yes. as Mary is coming and, down. And I will say, too, a noticeably like nicer looking. Oh, yes. It's very – it's larger. There's ribbons. Yeah. You can definitely yeah. tell some, some serious coin was spent <laughs> on this Valentine. Mary uh, comes down in a daze and asks what she's reading. Edith tries to like – not engage. Uh, and Mary says, Oh, of course, it's Valentine's Day. And she just kind of like stares at Edith. Uh, right. Well, she does make some conversation about like, you know, what are you doing in London? <laughs> and then like Edith finally gets on. She's like, I wish you a happy time. <laughs> and I'm just like, God, just be catatonic. <laughs> it would be more comfortable for everyone. Yeah. No, I mean, she really does just stare at Edith for like two seconds. Just. Yeah. Well, and then she just stares at a doorway. <laughs> right. Which it might have been the area where she and Matthew first kissed each other. I think it must right be. Right before they killed Lavinia with their love. <laughs> um. Right. And I also, I love how Mary looks this whole episode. Like, it's like her whole style was goth Princess Leia. Yeah, totes. <laughs> <laughs> Because she really like it, she doesn't have the buns, but it's just the way her hair is. The, waved. You know, her hair is definitely waved in such a way yeah. that it looks very like stuck out to the side, and just yeah. the you know the twenties fashions very similar to the seventies silhouette, very similar to the galactic silhouette. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mrs. Hughes arrives at the Ripon Union Workhouse. Ripon, yeah. city of a thousand nightmares. <laughs> Apparently, like good lord, man. Everything is happening in Ripon. <laughs> I wish I lived there. Uh, well, you could visit the workhouse. Yeah, it is uh, bleak. There's a big sign on the wall that just says, God is good. That is a pretty common feature in workhouses, if I recall correctly. It was always like, God is love, God is good, yeah. work makes God good. <laughs> like, just all this horrible, like, 1984 shit. God, love, work, good. <laughs> <laughs> you work, love, God. <laughs> Die now, God, work later, you. (laughs) I don't know. Right. Um, So, yeah, there's a bunch of uh, poor coughing people there, and they're all uh, picking oakum, which was a standard workhouse activity. What's an oakum? Oakum is, it's basically, it starts out as rope, and then you pick it all out and fray it, and then it's used as basically like caulking on ships. Oh my god. Yeah. What a horrible task. That is why it was reserved for workhouses and prisons and whatnot. Jesus. Yeah. Very unpleasant. And very, because the thing about it would be, too, that you would just get little hemp fibers floating in the air the whole time oh, that you're god. essentially always breathing. It was just... I know. mean, textile manufacture and processing really did not ever get any better. Right. 
it's, uh, we've just outsourced it. Right. So everybody just keep that in mind, okay? Like all the factories that make your clothes, <laughs> this is still what's going on. Yeah. And this is Hughes approaches one of them. It is, it's Mr. Grigg. <gasps> Mr. Charlie Grigg. Of the, the cheerful, cheerful Charlies. Charlies. They ride again and <laughs> again. Yeah. Who, I, again, I'll tell you, never thought I'd see him again. I never did either. Not, I, you not know, the slightest and again, idea. This is why we can't completely hate Baron Fellows. Yeah. You know? It's like, hey, forgot about Charlie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and also Mrs. Hughes really getting some meddling cred in. Oh man, she's she's, she's credlin. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know it's full power meddling. Like, well, you know, there's a disturbance in the force. <laughs> Isabel's not meddling. Mrs. Hughes has to pick up the slack. <laughs> Indeed. So Mr. Grigg thinks that Charlie must have sent her, and Mrs. Hughes is like, uh, "Well, I work with Mr. Carson." This actually affected me very much emotionally. Yeah. Like, just, ah, uh, he's just the whole, ah, uh, he's just so sure that Charlie wouldn't abandon him. Right. Despite having been given no assurances. Right. At well, any point. And last time he was there, he, like, didn't he, like, try to blackmail Carson? He did Carson? try to blackmail him. Yeah, so maybe, you know. Look, I know, but it's still, look, he's been reduced to something terrible. Yeah, that's certainly true. And he does say, you know, theater folk will stick together, right. which is a nice thought. <laughs> but look, in my experience, no one will cut you loose faster than theater folk. Yeah. They're not good at that. Listen, theater folk don't have steady jobs. They can't afford to be sticking together too much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are you buying the drinks? They'll stick around. <laughs> We get our first upbeat train music because <laughs> yeah. Jesus, yeah, nothing good has happened so far. <laughs> Indeed, Edith disembarks in London and finds Mr. Gregson waiting for her. He says he has not stopped thinking about her. She can't believe that he's there, right? Because Aunt Rosamond, Aunt Rosamond, Aunt Rosamond. Oh my God! I hope she comes back. Me too. Is sending her driver. So he says he's been doing a bit of the the research mm-hmm. and that it is possible for them for him. To obtain a divorce in Portugal, Greece, or maybe Germany. Right. Uh, some of those countries permit a spouse to divorce a lunatic. Right. If you uh, find yourself married to one as an incomprehensible plot device. <laughs> uh, so he asks if she would live with him if he had to go to Germany to obtain this divorce. Uh, Mr. Burns is there. The driver. <laughs> yes. Uh, allowing Edith to masterfully evade. Right. Uh, she just... And I like how Edith plays this whole thing. Look, I do, too. Edith is now a woman of the world. Yeah. She's been jilted. She's been, you know, taken uh, uh, taken in by a foe, Patrick. That's right. You know, she's she's dealt with a lot at this point. She and has. She's just like, you know what? I'm just going to keep my expectations low. Yeah. I'm going to go do some stuff. Like, it's fine. Well, and what I like is how... Like, natural and relaxed the two of them are with each other. Yes. Like, there's so little, like, teeth clenched. Oh, I say. Well, he's not in the nobility. Right. He is a professional man. Right. And not a professional man in the evil sense. (laughs) Right. Maybe that's why Lord Grantham doesn't like him. Yeah. Because, well, he's an editor, not a publisher. But he's like, oh, Oh, these newspaper folk, they're all like Sir Richard Carlyle. (laughs) Yeah. Aw, you guys. Remember how great Ian Glenn was as Sir Richard Carlyle? I do. I still think Mary should have married that guy. (laughs) Well. Also, Edith is wearing an amazing coat. She is. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I want this coat. I don't even think it would look good on me. (laughs) I just, I want it. 
It would turn me into Gollum. <laughs> I don't know that I'd go that far. Eh, you never know. It's the one coat. <laughs> uh, back at Downton in the library, Nanny Rosie Cheeks arrives with uh, the children. For their daily supervised visit with their <laughs> own parents. Yes. Uh, Thomas is still clearing away the tea, and Nanny's worried that she's early, but no, tea was just late. You guys. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you have ovaries? <laughs> Did they explode during this scene? If um, so, we want to hear your story. <laughs> yeah. Because Branson Babies. gets down oh, yeah. on his knee, and in his Irish accent says, come to me, darling. Yeah. And I just, I got pregnant immediately. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, oh, in Baby City. Yeah. Baby Sippy's And super... Baby George also. Oh, yeah. Ah, they're so cute, you yeah, guys. They're very, very Look, cute. Look, these babies are so cute that we have turned into like 50-year-old women. We have. We're yes. just, oh, they're so cute and blah, blah, blah. Oh, they grow so fast. Yeah, so that's great. Uh, Mary, <laughs> Mary less cute. She just sort of takes George and... Limply holds him. Yeah, it's continuing her staring regimen. I also noticed, actually, that she... Or, no, that Thomas calls nanny miss west they all call her miss west right except for the family i thought well this i think the family called her miss west too i don't know and that that was what interested me because everybody else is either just one name or mrs you know mrs patmore Mm -hmm. mrs hughes but everybody else is just you know barrow anna you know etc and so it was interesting that there is this again there's this level that she gets a title out of respect, but it's not the missus yes, that she gets. That's true. So I just was thought that was well, a little bit interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, because Mrs. Hughes actually isn't married. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Hey everybody. <laughs> she listen, <did. laughs> been doing this podcast for three years. She still surprises. She she didn't even know it was Valentine's Day. <laughs> uh yeah, that's interesting. Well <laughs> and I mean, you know, they call her nanny frequent just straight right, up nanny. Right, that's true. Yeah. I keep wanting to make a joke about like Nanny West and Kanye West, but it's just not happening. Oh, it's a shame. I know, right? <laughs> You'd think there would be something. <laughs> right. But it's just, it's like, it's too hard. It's like staring into the sun, <laughs> making jokes about Kanye West. <laughs> no, you're right. Well, he might find out about it too. Like, that would Lord. literally be the best thing that ever happened in this podcast. <laughs> Cousins. <laughs> Do you know Kanye West? Are you Kanye West? <laughs> if so... We want you to start a Twitter beef with us. <laughs> We're ready to go. <laughs> we'll like check it like three days later and be like, shit, <laughs> Kanye West has been tweeting at us. <laughs> the Dowager Countess has gone to see Isabel at Isabel's. And uh, Isabel does not want to interfere with Mary. And that is why she's not going to uh, see baby George. I'm like, what do you mean you don't want to interfere? That is literally your best skill. Right. Mary could use a little interfering, yeah, quite frankly. Really? Like Anyway, the Dowager Countess agrees with us, yeah. of course, <laughs> Obviously. as all right thinking people must, <laughs> that uh it is the job of grandmothers to interfere. Mm-hmm. Uh which my mother will be happy to hear. <laughs> uh Mosley arrives to see Isabel and the Dowager Countess tries to excuse herself. She says, Oh, you know, is it a secret assignation? <laughs> yeah. And uh Mosley comes in and he's asking for his old job back as Isabel's butler. Right. Isabel pulls the strings on the shower bath on that one pretty quick <laughs> and says, uh, she has no need for a butler, uh, because she just eats off a tray and she's an old widow. Yeah. And uh the Dowager Countess 
cannot she's like listen you're like you know losing your husband sucks losing your kid also sucks but a tray <laughs> come on a tray a yeah. tray have some goddamn self-respect isabel has none she yeah. has she's she's bottomed out i dare say worse than mary yeah because no, she's mary really... still can muster up the old bitch engine yeah isabel can't even yeah she can't even get excited no, about meddling. She's wrecked in this she episode. She is really wrecked. I mean, just her face yeah, yeah. is just devoid of spark. Yeah. And she's a pretty sparky lady. Yeah, I know. It's a fancy London party. Ah! Yes. It's Li- my favorite kind. That's right. Literary types bustling about. Edith's hair. Edith, yeah. Oh wow. my God, y'all. <laughs> I can't. I can't take it. I'm on fashion overload. <laughs> it's it's a struggle. But Gregson kind of pulls her aside a little bit and picks up the discussion about uh, possibly moving away. Uh, and Edith is like, I can't. You know, do we want to live in sin? And he's like, Well, it'd only be living in sin until the divorce went through, and then we get married. Come on. Um, You'd also be in a foreign country. That's what foreign countries are for, right? Have ask you, your sister. Ha- ask your dead sister. <laughs> Have you not seen parades end? Right. Come on. <laughs> Just bolt already. Um, yeah. I mean, Edith is definitely clearly tempted, and they lean in for a kiss when a waiter comes in and is like, excuse me, sir, is there any more gin? We're almost out. Dock his pay. Worst Fire that guy. waiter ever. First rule of being a waiter, don't cock block the founder of the feast. That's right. Don't do it. Yeah. What is wrong with you? For God's sake, these literary types can get by for 30 seconds without gin. I don't know. What are the 20s? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. That gin was so popular in the 20s and in the time of Dickens, but with completely different crowds. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure gin was still popular with the low classes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just wasn't like heroin I, the way that it was in Dickens' right, age. Right. I'm sure, you know, Charlie Grigg had had some gin in his time. <laughs> Down at the village, Rose is examining her letters, and uh, the Dowager Countess drives up to Molesley House, yeah. which I'm sure is not called Molesley House. <laughs> I know. Uh, but I she, just like saying things like that. She rolls by, and old Mr. Molesley is, like, about to lose his shit. Yeah. This is like, you know, you know, Jesus being like, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. This, his, it's basically like how we would be if Kanye started a Twitter beat That's with us. That's basically true. <laughs> uh, so she tells him she has a message for your son, uh, which is that he want, she wants Molesley to come to her house to help Sprat. Sprat! We've never known her butler's name before, and I'm Indeed. thrilled. Yeah. Uh, she wants Molesley to come demonstrate his skill uh, for some lady that might want a butler. Yeah. And, uh, you know, old Mosley's like, hey, yeah, I'll tell him. Yeah. But he's also very slow on the uptake. Right. Like all Mosley's. <laughs> Indeed. Just, uh, Mosley's. It's the Mosley family motto. Yeah. Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> come again? <laughs> yeah. I'm drunk. Yeah. When I, I noticed that old, old Mr. Mosley actually, in fact, tugs his forelock, like, the lock of his hair. As, That's weird. Is that a thing that people do? Yeah, that was, you know, uh, you know, it's because if you didn't have a hat, you couldn't tip your cap, so you tugged your forelock. Oh. Yeah. It's I a, thought he just had that thing where you pull your hair out and eat it. <laughs> no. I mean, he may have that thing for all I know. He is pretty bald. But it is also a sign of respect. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also interesting, too, that he's the only guy in the series that we ever see really get all kind of tongue-tied around the upper classes. That's true, but we don't see that many people in the lower classes. Well, right. I mean, that's, I that's mean, true as well. I mean, most of the people that we see work with them on a daily basis, well, so yeah. you eventually get over it. Yeah. 
in the Carson cave, Carson is rather put out that Mrs. Hughes was going through his mail. Um, oh, but she holds her own. She, Look, oh, she it's does. Not, it's not that I'm pro reading other people's mail. It's that I'm pro Mrs. Hughes and everything that she does. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. She asks if he wants to know how he's doing. Carson says that he does not. And if he did, he would have answered the letter. You're very good at channeling Carson. <laughs> thanks. Uh, no, really, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> um, Mrs. Hughes says that he's in the workhouse. And in case you were wondering, it's as bad as something out of Dickens, which it isn't. That is true. I've, I've read me some Also, Dickens. like, Mrs. Hughes, we already made a Dickens reference. It's pretty low-hanging <laughs> fruit at this point. Right. So, well, like, get it together. <laughs> yeah. Um, Carson is surprised that there are still workhouses. Uh, and apparently there are some. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he says, well, at least he's in the dry. Uh, Mrs. Hughes says it's very moldy, but whatever. In any case, Carson does not feel he could be of any help. And he just, because Mrs. Hughes is like, you used to sing and dance with this man, which was really not the way to Carson's heart. Right. But also, one. I was like, it was, it, I don't know. I like that she said that. Like, yeah, as if, like, it was it was a miscalculation on her part, clearly, but I just thought it was cute. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Like she's like, clearly that means something, right? <laughs> I don't know how you theater folk work. <laughs> right. I've never been to a play. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to a play. <laughs> hey, yeah, that, that wasn't was, bad. That was all right. there You're you go. welcome, Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, this brings us to our second recurring segment. Oh, boy. With everyone's favorite workhouse one-up, <laughs> Tom. <laughs> hey, it's Tom Repeats History. Hooray. Okay, so this week we are talking about the poor law in England, the uh, the general concept of it. it. It dates back actually to 1388 when uh, and the aftermath of the Black Death workers were suddenly much more valuable as so many of them had died and this got people concerned that they would start going from place to place trying to earn more money and thus the law was passed that everybody basically had to stay uh everybody was required to stay within the borough city hundred rape or wapentake that they were uh did you say wapentake from yes had i known that was on the table i would have called you Our resident workhouse wapentake. Indeed. But these were all just administrative units uh, of the 1300s, apparently. What a horrible time. <laughs> it was pretty bad. I know that nobody's out there <laughs> being like, man, I really wish I lived in the 1300s. Uh, but Jesus. Yeah, it sucked. Uh, in 1601, it was changed to be a little bit less punitive uh, in the way it worked. I mean, in, in the, up until then, it had just been like, listen, if you get out of line... Uh, you know, we're going to just hold you in some way in the stocks until we can get you back to your home area. Uh, in 1601, they sort of changed up uh, and sort of divided people into classes. So there was the, the impotent poor, which were people who were old or sick or actually couldn't work, and they would be sent to the poorhouse or the almshouse where they were just being taken care of. Uh, if you were the able-bodied poor, meaning that you were able-bodied, just couldn't find work, uh, you know, for whatever reasons were going on, then you would get sent to the workhouse. Uh, and then if you were the idle poor who was able to work but not trying to find work, then you would get sent to the house of correction or even prison. Uh, so they were at least trying to make some kind of distinction there. And, and at this point, there was a clear 
distinction between workhouse and corrections house. Mm -hmm. You know, the workhouse, you would be put to work there, but it wasn't necessarily designed to be punitive. It was just they didn't want anybody not working. In 1834, this was all starting to get a little bit unwieldy, uh, and so they they passed a new amendment at that time. Uh, One of the main things that had happened was that the Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815, so a whole lot of people were suddenly out of work and had a lot of training with guns. And this is always a, a rough situation. <laughs> um, you know, between Quick the- solution, Valentine's Day card. <laughs> Valentine's Day bullets. Shoot someone in the heart today. <laughs> well, they didn't go with that. Um, Pity. Yeah. And also at this time, agricultural productivity was starting to increase. Modern methods were coming along, which meant that they just didn't need as many workers on uh, the farm. And people were starting to move into cities. And this is a problem because the way the poor law worked, all the individual sort of little units paid the poor rate of tax to support all the poor people in their area. So it meant that if a bunch of poor people were moving into the cities, all of a sudden the people in the cities had to pay a much higher poor rate than the people in the country, and this made them angry. And there was also a lot of political thinking at this time of things like uh, Ricardo had the iron law of wages, which is that uh, basically it was just saying that anybody who's getting anything for free is reducing everybody else's wages. Uh, and some other very like very proto-proto-libertarian kind of mm-hmm. thought processes were going on. So in any case, the, the conclusion of all this was the 1834 Poor Law Amendment. Uh, it said that every parish or a group of parishes, so a parish union, which is why we saw the Ribbon Union Workhouse, uh-huh. um, had to establish a workhouse uh, and established a centralized authority to oversee all the workhouses in the country. Uh, and it specified that the conditions in the workhouse must be worse than the worst available job in the parish because otherwise it was felt that people would just not try and get a job and just go hang out at the workhouse. Cousins, you can't see my face. <laughs> my bleeding heart liberal face is sitting here, mouth agape, it is. in shock. Yes, I can see it. Uh, and they also attempted to ban outdoor relief. Uh, in the past, charity or government charity had been divided into indoor relief, which was provided in institutions such as a workhouse or a poorhouse, uh, and outdoor relief, which basically just meant food or other charity being given to people without them having to enter an institution. So it wasn't necessarily literally outside. It just wasn't within a workhouse. Uh, and they... They really wanted to ban that because, again, it was just going to encourage idling or whatever. Uh, But that turned out to be really impractical because it's just much cheaper to provide outside relief than to require everybody to move into the institution and then you're responsible for everything from them. And so the people who are paying the poor rate always manage to find ways to keep the outdoor relief happening to save themselves money. Things that you would do in the workhouse were just jobs such as breaking stones, uh, crushing bones for fertilizer, <gasps> yes, uh, and picking oakum, as we discussed. Uh, the tool you would often use for picking oakum was a spike, uh, and thus the colloquial term for a workhouse was always the spike, getting sent to the spike. There, at first, poor rates went down and everybody felt like this had been a success, uh, but to get political for a second, much like welfare reform in the 90s, it was only successful because the economy happened to be improving at the time. Uh, in the 1840s, with several bad harvests, including notably things like the potato famine, 
everything went back to the way it had been, and they weren't really saving any money. And also, it was just a miserable time for everyone. It was known as the Hungry 40s. And it was it was no, real bad. confused with the Hungry Hundreds. Right. <laughs> you know, and there were always... It was always controversial. I mean, you know, Dickens was hardly the only one to be opposed to it. The, the Times in London uh, was always very opposed to workhouses and always, almost every day, would have at least one article somewhere in the paper about, uh, you know, how bad they were. Mm-hmm. And they did expose some, like, real scandals. Uh, one was called the, the Andover Workhouse Scandal, where... Uh, the prisoners were essentially not getting fed because the people who ran it were just taking all the money that was supposed to go to food and lining their own pockets with it. Uh, and the prisoners were, in some cases, reduced to eating the bones that they were supposed to be crushing <gasps> for fertilizer. Yeah. And just, you know, hor- horror scenes like that. Um, that's like a Saw movie. Yeah. Yeah, it was real bad. And uh, again, see, that's the sort of thing that Dickens would... would you know, yes, yeah. yes. Um over time, and this is where I tried to get into what really would it have been like at this time in Downton Abbey. I mean, it was what I was trying to get to, and, and I had some difficulty this with it. This period is like a weird no man's land. It is. For, like, social history. Yeah. Because it's wedged in between the two wars. Right. So I think in a lot of cases, historians don't feel as compelled to ex- you know well, explore the social aspects right because they're more interested in how the political landscape reconfigured itself yeah 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 it's tough but um i mean what i established was that you know one thing that happened was at these workhouses they provided health care to the inmates at least you know basic rudimentary health care which if you were poor and you weren't in a workhouse you could not get mm-hmm. you couldn't afford it you know and that was that was something that the people who made the poor law were worried about again they wanted there to be no appeal to the workhouse at all and yet they couldn't not give health care to the people there so that that was always a dilemma and so over time what wound up happening was that they essentially became public hospitals mm-hmm. when they were officially finally abolished in 1930 what happened was they were all just they were officially said okay you're now just hospitals you're no longer workhouses and you're you know that's that's where you end up uh, and and that that became the sort of under, almost understood thing among the lower classes as we got into around the turn of the century that you would basically work and then when you were too old to work anymore and you weren't getting any more wage, you went off to the poorhouse until you died. Like, and that was, that was just how Is it that was. sort of the beginning of the national health? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it wound up, you know, in all sorts of complicated ways that it fed into each other, but it, you know, the, the various things that were transitioning out of the workhouses also, you know, were sort of like two steps away from becoming the national mm-hmm. health. Um, yeah, in 1905, it was finally said that workhouses, the deterrent workhouses, should no longer sort of be for just po- being poor, mm-hmm. but only for the incorrigible poor. Um, <laughs> Great name for a band also. <laughs> right. And actually in 1911, they were uh, officially no longer referred to as workhouses. They were just called poor law institutions. Um, I can see why that didn't catch on. <laughs> right. Uh, which, you know, on the one hand, yeah, okay, technically, so that sort of makes that building anachronistic. But it's not like that was an engraved, you know, sign. Yeah, no, that's like, you know, like a WPA engraving in yeah. an airport or something, yeah. you know. Well, and again, Mrs. Hughes and both cheerful Charlies not so cheerful now, uh, they all would have still called it the workhouse. Well, yeah. You know? I mean, that, that does make like sense. Like, my grandmother still calls the refrigerator the icebox. <laughs> right. Like, 
no, we no, might no. call it something different but to her that's what it'll always be yeah no i understand that like that that part i'm fine with but i mean i will say like everything i read seemed to indicate that that scene of a room full of people picking oakum like, should not should be not happening. have been happening but again like you know what i can say is that it was starting to fade out in 1911 and it was completely gone in 1929 well this is but, the north i mean it is the north and you know again i couldn't really find anything definitive that would say that yeah it would have at least been the exception to the rule that there would mm-hmm. still be a place like this but it's not completely out of the question i see but most most places that would have had a sign saying workhouse out front would have just had uh, poor and elderly, sick people in it mm-hmm. and not people working. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of that history there. And there Wonderful. It is. Thank yeah. you for repeating history for all of us mouth breathers. <laughs> You're welcome. And thank you, Wikipedia, for doing all my work for me. <laughs> Down in the kitchen... Daisy and Ivy unpack an electric mixer, uh, which actually was purchased by Lady Edith, who just continues to be a boss. Yeah. I mean, she's just... Can we let Lady Edith run the estate, for God's sake? Yeah. She seems pretty on top of things. She does. Uh, Mrs. Patmore is very displeased about the electric mixer, but Daisy says that uh, she would be quite happy to not have to whip cream and eggs and all sorts. Uh, but Mrs. Patmore worries that they'll be out of a job because what with all these modern contraptions, mixers and toasters and such, uh, her ladyship can just feed the whole house with one woman from the village, mm-hmm. which I think is overstating it a bit. Yeah. A bit. A bit. But-, but I mean, her point is well taken. Yeah. The March of Progress marches on and leaves... Uh, many skilled workers in the dust indeed it does jimmy asks ivy about her valentine and kind of implying that he sent her one right because ivy got a valentine and daisy got look (sighs) (laughs) listen we're really sorry that we even have to recap this stupid jimmy and ivy and and daisy yeah oh my god um okay so alfred says jimmy's just teasing ivy but ivy thinks that jimmy sent it uh, because she is dumb. <laughs> she she is. And then she tells Daisy that she thinks Alfred then must have sent Daisy's Valentine. Mrs. Patmore makes a face because she can smell a hideous subplot of Bruin. Right. And this is the only subplot she ever gets to be involved with anymore. I mean, Which stinks. Well, but uh, I know. It does stink, though. That it does she has stink to deal because with she's such these... a great actress and yeah. a great character. Yeah. Free Mrs. Patmore! <laughs> Uh, in the upstairs hallway, Nanny Rosy Cheeks calls up Thomas, and Thomas replies, that's Mr. Barrow to you. Mm-hmm. And she asks him to tell Mrs. Patmore something about... She not- says not to give Sibby an egg with her tea. Right. So, all right. Maybe uh, she's egg intolerant. <laughs> it could be. Nanny is the only one that would know and have to suffer the consequences. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thomas invites her to proceed downstairs and tell Mrs. Patmore herself, but she says she can't. The children are on her own and, and goes off. In the library, the kids, uh, <laughs> Edith, Rose, Branson, and the ghost of Mary are all there. That's kind of like a very less fun Scooby-Doo. Uh, let's see. Let's figure this out. All right. Uh, so Branson's Freddy. No, can you, no, how about if Edith's Freddy? Cause she had that headscarf. All right. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Rose is Velma cause she's very resourceful. All right. 
which means that Mary is uh, Daphne, Daphne, and, and then Branson, Branson is Shaggy. Shaggy. Yeah, there we go. And Sibby is Scooby Doo. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, we sorted that all. <laughs> Turns out it was the old owner of. Townsend Abbey all along. Would have got away with it too. If it weren't for you meddling kids and your damned entailment. (laughs) I I was thinking it was going to be old Mr. Molesley. Oh, man. (laughs) I like him, though. No, that's true. I don't want him to be the villain. No, actually, it would be whoever it was that brought that traveling fair to Downton those couple seasons ago. Anyway, Edith is very exasperated with Rose uh, and wonders why she bothered placing an ad in London if Rose was just going to take care of it. Right. Uh, and Mary points out that she like had other shit to do in London. Right. But, you know, I think Edith's just tired of not having things to be cranky about since everything's going so well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently, they'll be interviewing a promising candidate in Ripon who couldn't come to Downton Abbey herself because she's caring for a sick aunt. Right. Meanwhile, Branson says that Mary should take an interest in something. Uh, Again, the only proactive person so far. Yeah. Well, Anna has tried, but but like, you know, Anna, Anna's a servant and Branson is part of the family. Yeah. Mary does say that she is interested in George or she will be. Uh, and then she asks what Branson's been doing and he says this whole business with the repair shop, Lord Grantham blunders for, uh, in. he comes over he's like oh stop treating mary like a human being branson uh and then he tells mary to concentrate on feeling better and it's like what do you think staring into the middle distance is <laughs> like yeah it's just it's so unfortunate well and this is the kind of like you know there's several wrong ways to deal with a crippling depression right one of them is letting the person do this the other one is definitely harping on them constantly yeah 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 but nobody here is harping on her constantly right. i mean people are making their opinions known right but it's not like every you know 10 minutes somebody's popping into her room to try to get her to leave yeah Agreed. and she was the one who brought it up mm-hmm. she even apologizes to lord grantham for bringing it up yeah and i am like why don't you all just poison him <laughs> yeah, I was like, go back upstairs dad nobody would mourn him <laughs> Like, even McGee at this point would be like, well, <laughs> Robert had his moments. <laughs> but my God, the thing with the money? <laughs> we wouldn't have been able to have a decent luncheon for years. <laughs> Down in the servant's kitchen, Daisy is kind of grilling Jimmy Kent Ugh. regarding Valentine Gate. Jimmy Kent 22. is the Jon Snow of this show. <laughs> he knows nothing, he contributes nothing, and I hate him. Yeah. Also, he's very attractive. Right. Yeah, that's the trifecta. Uh, Jimmy Kent is all coy about it, uh, but then after Daisy leaves, he tells Thomas, he's like, of course I didn't send it uh, to Ivy. I'm a giant dick. Right. She's homely. Uh, no, but he sent one to Lady Anthuser. Anstruther, I Anne believe. Anstruther. Yeah. Well, you know, I had most of the letters. Yeah, no, it was an anagram. Uh, who he used to work for, and she might be useful. Now, I do like the way he thinks. Right. He's very strategic. Yeah, well, he's not bad when he's just, like, being saucy, you know. But when he gets involved in, you know, Daisy and Ivy's lives. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. Like, go wind a clock. Yeah, like, go back to Lady Anstruther. Yeah, and leave us be. That's right. We had a perfectly fine show before you ever showed up. <laughs> That's right. We'll even, you know, we'll keep Ugly Landry in the bargain. Yeah. He's like, fine. We can deal with him. He might want to be a chef or do something interesting. <laughs> we don't know. Right. Mrs. Hughes has gone to Isabel's. Uh, 
And Isabel tells Mrs. Hughes that Mr. Grigg is none of her business. Right. And Mrs. Hughes says that, you know, he was expecting help from his old pal. His old pal is now an old crab and won't help him at all. And, uh, you know, she manages to badger Isabel into taking an interest. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mrs. Hughes is like, come on, doing things that are none of your business is your jam, Brony. <laughs> right. Get back in it. Do it. Be dynamic. No, I miss, like, Mrs. Hughes essentially says that literally. Yeah. Like, she's like, I never thought I'd hear you say. It's very, like, Rocky. If Rocky was <laughs> one old lady convincing another old lady to get back in the meddling ring. Yeah. Cause you're a bum. <laughs> yep, bum. I can't. I had it for no, a second. Yeah, for a and, uh, second. Yeah, that's okay. Scotland is a fickle <sighs> accent. It's hard. Yeah. Like, have you seen Shrek? Mike Myers could not hold it down. No. And his dad was Scottish. Listen, Kelly, you're not from any part of Scotland I ever heard of. <laughs> P.S. New cousin. We hope you're navigating all of our callbacks, okay? Uh, if you're not, just listen to all the old episodes and you'll be fine. Yeah, please do. And I know that, you know, it's only like 52 hours or something. <laughs> right. You can knock it out in a weekend if you don't stop to yeah. eat or use the bathroom. It's... It's actually probably about a hundred hours at this point. Oh, right. Yeah. I keep forgetting that we have a really long podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So maybe like a, a work week. Just <laughs> call in down. <laughs> in the Carson cave, Branson arrives somewhat surprisingly. Uh, but Branson says that he knows Carson will think that he's being inappropriate, but he needs his help with something. Uh, he says that he believes that Mary needs to take an interest in something and that it should be the managing of the estate, but that Lord Grantham disagrees and feels that Mary needs to be protected from the world, etc. Carson says, well, even if I did agree with you, which Branson correctly... Which believes, I'm not saying I do. Right. But Carson, or Branson interprets it correctly. He says, how can I help? He says that Mary would listen to Carson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Carson's like, oh. Because you're her real dad. <laughs> right. Indeed. Down in the kitchen, the first thing I have to say is, look at all those eggs. <laughs> Listen, I'm a big egg kick right now. Yeah. And they look delicious. Yeah. There was like uh, 40 of them. Yeah. There was a ridiculous number of eggs. <laughs> Jimmy has announced that he's going to the pub, but Alfred is like, hold up. Yeah. It is not your day off. Uh, but he says, oh, I can go for a walk. And I'm like, not to the pub. Uh-huh. Like, look, I know 10 years have passed, <laughs> but these shenanigans, these kids today. I tell you what. I, wow. Yeah. I just, I am, I am surprised at their audacity. Back in, back in our day, you couldn't even misplace a dress shirt without it being a fucking inquisition. Right? Anyway, uh, Daisy is firing up the mixer, which is very exciting. Yeah. Ivy says that she, uh, doesn't think she could use it. She's afraid of being electrocuted. Which prompted me to write the note, Ivy equals mentally challenged Daisy. <laughs> yeah. Which is like not, that is not setting the bar. No. Uh, it's, 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 it's rough, yeah. buddy. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy invites Ivy to the pub with him and Ivy is all coy and says, Oh, you know, I never do anything I'm not supposed to. And then Mrs. Patmore comes in and is like, What? And Ivy's like, Nothing. And then Mrs. Patmore is horrified by the mixer. Right. Cause old timey people didn't <laughs> like stuff yeah. to change. <laughs> Yeah, well, Jimmy invited Ivy to the pub because she's afraid of the mixers, so he's like, oh, you should get some Dutch courage at the pub. Is that what he said? Yeah. Oh, my God. He's like, yeah, if there's something that you think might might electrocute you, definitely get liquored up and then start messing around with it. Yeah, that's that's what I do every time I blow dry my hair. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm like, oh shit, I gotta blow dry my hair again today? It's eight o'clock, but I better do a shot. <laughs> uh, in the library or somewhere, uh, Thomas is standing by a fireplace and Nanny Rosy Cheeks comes in. Oh my god, you guys. It is so Les Mis. She's all like, Thomas, at last we see each other plain. It's phenomenal. Like yeah. they just, ah, oh, no, just, it's, uh, oh, they hate each other so much. They do. It's been a while since such palpable hatred has been visible on this show. And mm. I am eating it up with a fork <laughs> because that is how thick it is. That, that's right. He wants to, she wants to know why Thomas didn't pass on her message about the egg, and Thomas says that he didn't feel like it, or didn't care to, or whatever. Uh, and also, why shouldn't Miss Sibby have an egg with her tea? Right. And I don't know, uh, this will all be made clear later. Yeah. But I was like, what? Yeah. What, I don't understand, like, ma- look, maybe she just can't have eggs. Right. Like, what do you know or care? Anyway. But, yeah. Well, he does like he, yeah. Sibby. He has... And Sybil was very nice to him. Yes. And, like, that's all fine. Yeah, that is all fine. Uh, in any case... Oh, hey, remember how his hand got shot in World War One? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, totally fine. Yeah, Nanny says that he is a member of staff, and thus her instructions are to be obeyed. Thomas says, well, aren't you a member of staff? And she says, not in that way. Also, and- Nanny, rosy cheeks. Babies need protein. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm very hung up on why she will not let this baby have an egg. <laughs> That's- eggs are delicious. Yeah, I, I agree. I know. You well, don't, though. You don't like eggs. Well, yeah. You can't possibly understand the love of a woman for an egg, Tom. <laughs> I don't think you're adequately sympathetic to baby Sibby's situation here. Well, not at the moment, but don't worry. I will be. Okay, great. Yes. And I also, like, shouldn't, like, isn't there actually an answer to whether Thomas has the obligation? You know, you'd think there would be. Right. Like, that seems like something that should be made clear in this stratified society. Well, but again, in the previous, like, look, up is down, black is white, servants are going to the pub. It's a changing world. It is a changing world. Yeah. Speaking of changes (laughs) and boundaries being crossed. Uh, back upstairs in Mary's room, uh, Anna is dressing her for dinner, and Carson comes in and asks if he may speak with Mary. Yeah. Uh, Everybody's like, what? Yeah. Anna leaves, and Carson says that he's going to be bold. Jim Carter, y'all. Yeah. I mean, we're not even in it yet. Yeah. But Jim Carter. Uh, ah, yeah. husband of the incomparable Imelda Staunton. Mm-hmm. God, what a fun couple they must be oh, to yeah. hang out with. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. I don't know what they're really like. Well, I think it must be nice, too, now that Jim Carter has finally got a profile. That's true. Yeah, now that he's he's yeah. on the map. Because yeah. I, I do think, wouldn't that be awful? It would be tough. Well, because, I mean, you and I have, you know, an imbalance in our marriage in terms of, like, who's more visible. Right. Spoiler alert, it's me. <laughs> right. um, but, like, that's how we want, like, right. we're, we're not, not on both the same... trying to be actors. Right. Like, we're not in the same profession. Yeah. And I just always think, and you know, it happens because yeah. people meet people at their job and they right. understand each other. Yeah. But it's just, it blows my mind. Yeah. I'm like, how could you even, you've just got to be a much more selfless person than I am. Apparently. I think. Yeah. Because I mean, they're still, they've been married since 1983. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, congratulations. Yeah. Way to go, you two crazy kids. <laughs> Uh, downstairs, Thomas stops McGee and asks if she has a moment. And I love McGee in this situation, and it's come up other times, mm-hmm. because she gets this very, like, look on her face that's like, listen, if you have a legitimate excuse, I'm ready to hear it, but you better not be wasting my time. Yeah. Like, and she's like, yeah. I have cat pillows to sew. <laughs> um, and there's only so much time before luncheon. <laughs> 
Uh, but he says that he is worried about Nanny West, that she has been leaving the children to their own devices. Uh, and McGee's like, oh, shit. Well, what she really says is, thank you for telling me, Barrow. <laughs> Sorry, I felt like that previous one wasn't really quite on my game. All right. Listen, we're all we're all just feeling this out here, cousins. Yeah, it's early in the season. I'm a little rusty. For we're, all of us. We're getting there. Yeah. We're getting it dialed in. <laughs> oh, you guys. <laughs> Okay, you guys. Wow. Everybody strap in. <laughs> We're back in Mary's room. Oh, shit. It's bitch time. Uh, so, in typical Julian Fellows fashion, he has not shown us Carson actually saying anything. <laughs> right, yeah. But Mary just lays the smack down. She says, I'm afraid I might have encouraged you to feel as though you had the right to address me in this way. Wow. This lapse is as much my fault as yours. Yeah. And just... Jim Carter's face. Yeah. Give him the Emmy. They won't. I know. Give him the BAFTA. Yeah. For God's sake. Yeah. I Somebody mean, give him something. Just yeah. because, no, this relationship is always like this and it always kills me. Yeah. Because he really loves her. Yeah. And her brain is so addled by all this class mm-hmm. division nonsense. Well, and the thing about it too is that he's... He appreciates those boundaries as well. He, you know, he also respects. And he would never, and he, all he wants her to do is understand mm-hmm. that it would have to come to this, right. you know, horrible nadir right. for him to even get into this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. He always, in the past, we've always seen it's her approaching him. Yeah. He lets her be the one to dictate. Right. When. When they have these yeah, moments mm-hmm. and he is now asserting himself as the father figure right. and saying, you need help. I'm here to help you. And she's just like, no. Yeah. And not even a souffle that got kicked in the nuts. Yeah. Just, I mean, every sorrowful thing that's like just tears in his eyes. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's Carson. Yeah. It's, he's, he's, he's very reserved. It down, and but- also like, cause that's the thing about it. He also respects sort of the, the justice of what she is saying, like mm-hmm. that this is a reaction she sort of has the right to have. In yeah. A way. But, but right. Oh my God, you guys. But yeah. then he's going to leave and he says, you know, you may think that I'm overstepping my boundaries still, uh, but you're letting yourself be defeated. Yeah. And somebody has to say so. Yeah. And, uh, Mary then stares at herself in the mirror like she does. <laughs> right. Uh, no. She does that a lot. She, well, you know, she's very pretty. <laughs> uh, look, I'm not pretty in that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, drop dead gorgeous, I mean, like yeah. Michelle Dockery. But right. if there's a mirror, you can bet I'm looking in it. I'm like, what's up, me? Yeah. What are you doing? Well, if there's an image of Michelle Dockery, you can bet I'm looking at it. So. <laughs> not quite the same thing (laughs) but point taken uh yeah and i mean it's just wow it's just yeah like this is this is the crack downton this is the downton that we keep doing this podcast for yeah that's right this is this is the good shit Mm -hmm. at dinner uh edith asks about a a meeting of the tent of the tenant farmers that they're setting up uh and it's it's going fine one farmer has a sister's wedding or something what he loses his farm. They they think they can forgive him. Ugh. Yeah. Nobody ever wants to rule an iron fist anymore. <laughs> uh, McGee is afraid that she is double booked. Uh, Edith is also not going to be available. Uh, the, the the farmers' wives aren't coming, but apparently they need a woman to preside. That's the rule, I suppose. Well, it is etiquette, right? right. I assume the etiquette rules haven't changed vastly. Yeah, since yeah. our last fashion backwards on the subject, right? 
Uh, so the Dowager Countess says that Mary can preside, which Branson is in favor of, but Lord Grantham, of course, is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the Dowager Countess kind of pushes it a little bit, and Mary gets mad. And she yeah. doesn't understand why everybody keeps nagging at her and nagging at her. They have said, like, one thing. I know. Like, this is the only time, in the presence of more than one other person, <laughs> anybody has said boo to her. Right. About any of this stuff. Yeah. Well, apparently, on the last six months, they've all just been busy thinking about O'Brien or something. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> why have we not processed these emotions? Um but yeah, and she says that can't they understand that, you know, Matthew was dead 50 years before his time. Which, okay, look, I've been kind of a bitch about this, but man, that's rough. Yeah, that is rough. I mean, you know, we all hated Matthew, but she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, and so she eventually, you know, storms off to her room. Uh, and Lord Grantham is like, this is just what I was afraid was going to happen. You know, we need to keep her and, and keep her from the world. Uh, and the Dowager Countess says that she disagrees, but they can't talk about it now because, mm-hmm. you know, pas de vendre de moustiques. Uh, we do see also Jimmy Kent giving some weird smirks. Yeah, he's just being a dick around. face. Yeah, like for... Like as if he's like somehow enjoying this display. Like yeah. it's very weird. Yeah, like, get out of here, Jimmy Kent. Ugh. So she moves on to complimenting the moose, which was spawned by the infamous mixer. Uh, so yeah, they're like, uh, did Mrs. Patmore make it? And... They're like, well, I assume she didn't send out for it. The jokes in this episode are crap. Yeah. Like, there's none of the zing. Yeah. Usually Baron Julian does a lot better, but he just can't seem to make a joke in this episode. Yeah. Pretty weak. Uh, But in any case, they say that they will send – to send compliments to Mrs. Patmore, um, which she was not going to be happy to receive. No. Back at Mosley House, Mosley Jr. is staring at the moon, (laughs) which is a scene that we definitely want to see. It's like – I wonder if I should be howling now. Mm. <laughs> Old Mosley comes out to ask how he's doing, and uh, Mosley's very frustrated. He's having a bit of a midlife crisis. Uh, yeah. Midlife Mosley, I like to call him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's he's upset that he you know had this great gig, and now he can't figure out what he's supposed to do. Right. Uh, and I don't know. Old Mosley lays down some wisdom and tells Mosley, like, hey, you have to work at things. Yeah. And Mosley reminds me of, like, one of those kids, like, their parents are paying for their college, but they take, like, eight years to get a degree, <laughs> and they change their major, like, five times. Yeah. And this is based very specifically on a person I went to college with. <laughs> uh, but uh, I find it very annoying. And it's just like, hey, like, and, you know, Old Mosley, he's about his business. Yeah. He's a gardener. Yeah. You know? He he knows his trade. He does his trade. Yeah. He knows he has to adapt when needs must. Yeah. Like the Dowager Countess. Yeah. And Mosley just goes back to looking at the moon, being like, because he calls. Uh, Wish I was a werewolf. <laughs> they can get a job. <laughs> no, <laughs> they cannot. Uh, no, but he calls uh, Lady Shackleton, who is the woman that the Dowager Countess is trying to set him up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he calls her an old bat. <laughs> right. And I'm like. I'm beginning to see why you don't have a job, sir. <laughs> like, what do you, what's your cover letter? Dear old bat and Mr. Bat. <laughs> I'd very much like to be your buttly butt. <laughs> Hire me. Rejected. <laughs> so in Mary's room, Mary is lying in bed, still fully dressed for dinner. Uh, the Dowager Countess comes in, said she is leaving and didn't want to leave without saying goodnight. And Mary says that, I suppose you think I behaved badly. And the Dowager Countess says that she doesn't care whether she behaved badly or not. She's not her governess. She is her grandmother. 
And Mary says, well, what's the difference? And the Dowager Countess says that the difference is that I love you. And, and Mary both, is like, oh, yeah. maybe I should stop being such a bitch all the time? Yeah. Because, you know, because game recognized game. Mary mm-hmm. knows the Dowager Countess doesn't just say, I love you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She doesn't say it to Robert. Right. <laughs> yeah. She's just like, oh, I don't know what happened there. Yeah. And the Dowager Countess says that George needs Mary. Uh, and Mary says that she knows that, but that she thinks that she won't be a good mother because all the softness that Matthew seemed to find in her uh, disappeared when Matthew died. And I like that she says it may have only existed in his imagination because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's true. Right. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. But the Dowager Countess says that there is more than one type of good mother, which is, a, you know, true. And yeah, they're not all, you know, cheeseheads like McGee. <laughs> right. Agreed. Um, and that she has a very straightforward choice in front of her that she must choose either death or life. Yes, yes. We all saw the trailer. Right. And Mary says, and so you think I should choose life? And it was an interesting thing to me because I think that, uh, you know, I think that the, the thought of death and choosing it, like, sort of literally, like, I don't think she's ever been close to uh, really considering suicide, mm-hmm. but it's something that she's been considering, considering, I think. Okay. Like, just because, like... Like, saying that you think I should choose life, like, really, like, not sure that she wants to, Mm -hmm. you know? Really not sure that she ever wants to go back to, you know, living and engaging in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah. Dowager Count is like, yeah, life. Mm -hmm. I'm for it. (laughs) She's like, clearly, I'm still here. Yeah. I'm a fan. You don't have to eat off a tray. (laughs) We're rich. (laughs) Your baby's rich as Croesus. Down in the Carson cave, Mrs. Hughes reveals to Carson that the authorities have released Mr. Grigg into her care, and she will be delivering him to Isabel Crawley on the morrow. Yes. And he can't believe that she's imposing on Isabel. Right. And, you know... At this time, when she is nearly broken by grief. And, you know, and Mrs. Hughes says, that's exactly why I'm imposing, and he just says, I don't understand you. And she says, I don't expect that you would. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you know, what an odd couple. (laughs) Yeah. In the entrance hall, as Dowager Countess is leaving, Lord Grantham says that he hopes she forgives Mary, and Lord Dowager Countess is like, of course I do, and says that their job is to wrap Mary up and keep her safe from the world. Dowager Countess says, not, you know, not at all. Our job is to bring the world to her. I think it's bring her back or to the world. Or bring her back to the world. That's, that's right. Um, and Lord Grantham disagrees, and she says, well, I can forgive Mary's poor judgment, but I find it very hard to forgive yours. Right? Word. Yeah. Like every person ever. Yeah. Because he sucks. He does suck. And so he just sort of goes, me. Yeah, he just sucks off into the distance. Yeah. Uh, She then invites Edith to come to lunch with her and explains that they will be selling Molesley to Lady Shackleton. And McGee says, as a servant. And then Maggie Smith pauses to summon up the, like, reserves of will to say this horrible line. And then says, no, as a Chinese laundryman. And it's not even edited well. Yeah. Like, it's supposed, like, uh, it's horrible. Yeah. The jo- ugh. Yeah. The jokes are so bad. Also, Chinese laundrymen, also servants. Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, Get with it. Yeah. Anyway, the thing I liked about that scene is just how much she does not like Lord Grantham. Yeah. 
and it's just her, so her evident. Own son. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, maybe that's why he doesn't care about Sybil. <laughs> yeah. From you, I learned it from watching you. <laughs> Below stairs, Jimmy Kent runs in needing help and Alfred follows. Uh, turns out Ivy's puking outside, uh, yeah. because she did go to the pub with mm. Jimmy Kent, like a dummy yeah. uh jimmy kent says she's just not used to drinking which i'm like this is probably her first drink ever yeah well because alfred's like what were you trying to do mm-hmm. you know like uh, yeah little well but also uh, jimmy kent doesn't even like her well i know but he keeps like insisting that every, like like who knows how far he's willing to go to maintain the charade that he wants everybody to think that he likes her for That's some reason true. anyway oh, anna has know. seen alfred running out in the hall and she's like what's going on he's like well if i don't gotta get outside i'm never gonna find out <laughs> right and uh so anna helps them get ivy back in and alfred snipes at jimmy kent and then anna helps ivy to get upstairs yeah. and ivy drunkenly is like will mr bates be missing you <laughs> and it's just like mr bates can wait his turn like you know he was in prison a long time he might have some like abandonment issues <laughs> In the entrance hall, uh, Carson and Count- and this is the following day. Yeah, this is the following day. Uh, Carson encounters Isabel, who had come to see George, but Nanny West had said that it wasn't a good time to see Nanny him. West can suck a fuck. Yeah, I am oh my so God. pissed off at her because, like, this is to my knowledge since you know news of Matthew's death, right? The first time she has come to see him, apparently. Yeah, and Isabel is just like, like reeling. Yeah. From having been kept from seeing George, like it's well, just. I don't understand why she's abiding by that. Yeah, like go find a senior member of staff. You're talking to Carson literally right now, right? Or go find McGee. McGee would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, but I mean, Isabel's just like messed up. Like she yeah. can't to deal with life. Um, Carson wants to take the opportunity to be like, "Hey, I got nothing to do with this Charlie Grigg guy." That's I didn't not. You know, I don't want you to. She's, he says, "I don't want you to waste your uh, uh, energy and kindness." Yes, I believe is what on, he on says. On an unworthy recipient, and Isabel says that. Well, she had almost forgotten that she had energy or kindness, and that's something. And just the craziest device. Yeah, like, just we can't even explain to you the face that's uh, like, wow. Uh, just, yeah. Uh, yeah. We're like, get well soon, Isabel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we miss you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Back in the servants' kitchen, uh, Bates and Anne are discussing the potential new ladies made, and Ivy is clearly extremely hungover. Yeah. And Anna asks, you know, how she's doing, and Ivy says, uh, not, what? just yeah. not very well. Not very well, yeah. and then. They chuckle. Bates and Anna are like, oh, we're old. <laughs> uh, but Anna says, oh, she supposes everyone was young once, and Mr. Bates says, oh, but you stayed young. And again, melting our hearts. Yeah. Erasing <laughs> the grief of the previous years. Yeah. And murder prison. <laughs> In some little nice restaurant or tea shop or something. In Ripon. In Ripon. Uh, McGee and Rose are sitting with that horrible hedge witch. Um, McGee says that she thinks she's seen her before, and she's like, oh, yes, I was briefly a housemaid at Downton. Slash witch. <laughs> right. Uh, she asks, why, why did she leave? And she says that she wanted something new. She wanted more of a challenge, so she had gone on and taken a class in hairdressing. She says she'd always been able to sew. Uh, and that she had a job as a lady's maid for a while, but an old it was with an old lady, and that old lady died. Oh, did she? Yeah. Did she write a reference before she died? <laughs> did she die driving a car writing a reference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did she die under mysterious circumstances? Mm-hmm. Did you have a lock of her hair? I don't think she really exists. Yeah. 
In any case, McGee says she'll, of course, have to check with Mrs. Hughes, but the witch is like, aha, I have this wonderful reference that Mrs. Hughes wrote for mm-hmm. me when I left. And, and McGee is like, oh, well. And Rose is like, yes, say yes, because this is her project. Yes. And so Rose wants it to work out. She's like a little Isabel in training, this Rose. Very <laughs> meddlesome. Yeah. No, that's true. Which is, which is fun. You know, generations of I was going to say, yeah, it's nice to see the youngins getting their <laughs> medal on. That's right. And so McGee gives in. She's like, when can you start? And she's like, oh, whenever. Whenever you need me. And McGee's like, what about your aunt? And she's like, my who? What? I have no aunt. But, uh, and then she's like, oh, I'm just so dizzy that I've got the job. Yeah, and again, I still had not at this point remembered who this person was Yeah, when we were first watching it. Yeah. And it's like, dude... McGee, like, why do you have servants? Like, well, you have servants to prevent you from making decisions. Right. I mean, I'll grant you that this this was in Mrs. Hughes's own hand. This, That's true. You know, this reference. So there is that. Um, I'm more like, hey, Braithwaite... You only had, like, three lies to remember. Come on. That's also true. Get it together, forgetting you have a sick aunt. At Dowager House, the day has finally come. That's right. Uh, Spratt really hates Molesley. <laughs> yeah. Which, like, thank you, fan service. <laughs> uh, he thinks that Molesley's trying to steal his job, and Molesley's like, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Uh, Spratt's kind of a weird dude. He is a weird dude, but I love him. <laughs> yeah. I wish Spratt was my butler. Uh, at lunch... Uh, Lady Shackleton is complaining about that awful Mr. Lloyd George who has removed farm subsidies. And the Dowager Countess wonders if he's German merely pretending to be Welsh. Oh, right. uh, then she tries to talk up... I'd also up- like to point out that this was the Prime Minister like during the second half of World War One. Lloyd George Well, why was. do you think it lasted for so long? <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Look, Tom, the Dowager Countess really hates him. Uh, No, clearly. She's on record in previous episodes. No, that's fair. Anyway, she then tries to talk up Molesley, but Spratt keeps sabotaging him, so it looks like it's going to be another year of banana peels (laughs) for poor old Molesley, who never hurt anybody, but is also super annoying. Well, I mean, I understand that. Like, I'm torn... In my feelings, because yeah. it's like on the one hand, yeah, he is Molesley, like he's fairly punchable. But <laughs> on the other hand, good lord, it's just like over and oh, over well, and again. Oh, it's just like because like Spratt is like ah, watch out, and like makes him almost drop the thing that he wasn't going to drop, right? And then he hands him a platter that's like really hot on the bottom because he turned the flame way up on the chafing dish. Yeah. And like, you know, just the Dowager and Edith, you know, they're doing this whole like, you know, Abbott and Costello thing trying to like (laughs) play it all off and it's not going well. Yeah. It it fails. Yeah. Because uh, Lady Shackleton (gasps) played. Yes. Oh my God. Played by uh, Fanny Dashwood of (laughs) Sense and Sensibility, which we just watched last night. Indeed. Anyway, but she thinks it's so terrible (laughs) that the war has displaced so many men and forced them to take employment for jobs that they are so clearly not suited. Yeah. And she tells Molesley that she hopes that he gets back to whatever it is that he does very soon. So it's very like... Yeah. The sad trombone of Molesley's life rolls on. (laughs) The sad trombone of Molesley's life probably doesn't even sound like a sad trombone. It's probably like, uh, let's see. In the village, Mrs. Hughes arrives with Mr. Grigg in a taxi. Which is a Ford. Uh, it's yeah. the first Ford we've seen on the show. Yeah, so that's exciting. USA. USA. Shh. <laughs> They're going to have that jazz singer. Just calm the fuck down. 
Uh, and Isabel welcomes the two of them in, and uh, they, they escort Mr. Griggin and, and send him upstairs for a bath. He asks after Charlie, and they uh, kind of lie to him and say that, oh, yeah, he's... I feel like uh, Mrs. Hughes does this all the time. Yeah. And I, that's the one thing that I can't get. I'm like, come on. Like, I'm like, I understand, like, he's sick and, like, whatever, but it's like... Right. I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like she makes these, you know, missions of mercy far too complicated for herself. Yeah. Well, she's convinced that Charlie is eventually going to come around and have a tearful, cheerful Charlie reunion. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) she wants to keep that possibility alive. At the Criterion Restaurant. Yes, which is a real restaurant, and that is, you know, as pictured in the show, that's that's the real thing. So if, if you have any interest in this restaurant, I recommend going to its website and looking at the history section, which is hilariously awkwardly written. And uh, also, if you Google it, you should be able to find a review of the restaurant in The Observer that was, uh, was actually from 2010. So maybe the restaurant has gotten better, but it is a vicious review of the criteria. Well, they're the restaurant. only kind that are worth reading. Exactly. So that is why it has my well, recommendation. Well, that and Peter Howell's movie reviews in the Toronto Star, where he agrees with everything that we think. Yes. <laughs> Edith arrives at the restaurant looking gorgeous, guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah, gosh. Like, wow. She's wearing this amazing dress with like a peacock styled bodice and this amazing drop waist sash and it is like teal and she looks freaking amazing. She does. She greets Mr. Gregson who says that she looks very glamorous, which we concur. Yes. If she- you had told us in season one that she would ever look this good. I have meant to sort of say this, like good lord. Yeah. It is just... Boy, yeah. we've done. I mean, it, it to say it's a one eighty on Edith feels <laughs> right. Like we've done like it's a, not even we've ext- done like a five forty or yeah. something. Like like it's just <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I mean she's just she's just so poised, and it's been a pleasure to watch the actress. Yes. You know, embody this art. Right. And right. because, you know, remember last season she was very sort of like still kind of unsure of herself. She's yeah. the whole Anthony Stralin thing. She hadn't really come into her power. Yeah. And compared she, to before that one, she was just conniving and evil. Just right. It's been, and now in this episode, like I was saying earlier, she's just so comfortable. Yeah, Laura Carmichael is really just yeah. nailing this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Edith uh, explains to Mr. Gregson that she feels so wild. She never would have been allowed to be out drinking with a man in a restaurant, in a smart London restaurant, <laughs> yes. even five years ago, let alone ten, because McGee taught them never eat anywhere in public, except at an hotel you're staying in. Yeah. Although sometimes she would cheat and take them to the Ritz. <laughs> anyway, Gregson declares that he loves her, and yes. Edith says she's glad. Again, Planet close, mm-hmm. close to the vest. Yeah. Just like, hey, uh, I've super been here before. Yeah. So is he. He is married to a lunatic. Oh, right. Um, but he says that he uh, is there to celebrate that he loves her and his progress, which is that he can get a divorce if he becomes a German citizen. Yeah. Edith is very touched that he would willingly become a member of the most hated race on the planet yeah. just for little old Edith. <laughs> yeah. And she asks if she can kiss him and she doesn't care who sees and they kiss. Yeah. Yeah. in front of the criterion and everyone and we're oh it's great yeah like celebratory fanfare yeah like yeah it's amazing yeah like it's a tree for edith like bam <gasps> edith finally found her tree yeah oh eaters <laughs> in i think mcgee's room or somewhere uh, mrs hughes has had the news broken to her about the revenge of braithwaite <laughs> um <laughs> Horrible cat-nosed weirdo. Um, <laughs> uh, in case you haven't picked up on this, cousins, Tom 
really hates Edna Braithwaite. I know. I don't like her, but he hates her. Like it, I'm, I honestly don't even understand why I hate her so much. Her but face I is do. offensive. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, and so Mrs. Hughes is of course upset, but she can't explain why it was mm-hmm. that she wrote such a good reference. She tries to be like, well, can't you just wait until the other, you know, responses come in? And McGee is like, I'm surprised to you that, well, in, in McGee's voice, I'm surprised to you. Don't you want to give some hardworking Don't woman- you want to give a hardworking young girl a hand? And I'm like, no, she's only going to use that helping hand to give Branson a reach around. <laughs> yeah. I'd also like to point out that a variety of other hardworking women are currently busy crafting responses to your ad. Yeah, that's like, true. Come on. What about McG- them? Look, McGee... Whenever McGee sets her cap, I think she's so pleased with herself yeah. for having made it. McGee has not lived a life full of choices that she gets to make. Yeah. And no, the one choice she really true. made, which was marrying old Dingleberry Lord Grantham. Yeah. Like, it's worked out okay, but you've got to figure. Yeah. Like, she yeah. probably did not appreciate her inheritance being flushed down the toilet twice. <laughs> right. Few people would. Yeah. In the kitchen, Daisy is talking to Mrs. Patmore, and we're still talking about these freaking Valentines. Yes. So she says that Jimmy must have sent that card to Ivy, and thus Alfred must have sent Daisy a Valentine. However, Mrs. Patmore has finally had enough. Right. So she goes into the servants' hall, gets Alfred. Mosley arrives. For some reason. For some, well, he's, uh, ugh. Yeah. He's like a bad penny. <laughs> he declines to discuss the luncheon with Anna, who, remember, uh, he tried to bang her once. Oh my uh, god. Right? Wow. What a long road this has been. So much crap has happened to this show. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but, uh, he says he doesn't want to discuss the luncheon, and then they all snap to attention because Branson has come in. He's looking for Mrs. Hughes. So in the kitchen, with Mrs. Patmore, and a lead pipe, <laughs> Alfred admits that he sent his valentine to Ivy, and that Jimmy Kent sent one to no one at Downton. Right. And then he leaves. Right. Uh, Mrs. Patmore then tells Daisy that she sent the card to Daisy because she thought that Alfred might send one to Ivy and she didn't want Daisy to not have anything to open. Yeah. And Daisy says, oh, I may not have a follower, but at least I have a friend. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's just, it's, it's very, very sweet. Very sweet. It's such a, it's such a homance. Yeah. You know, I love Daisy and Mrs. P. I do well, as and well. And that's the thing. I wouldn't even mind Ivy kind of being around. Right. But this whole love quadrangle. Yeah. It's just, it's detracting from the relationships that these people are actually having. Yeah. I don't want to watch four people constantly deflecting various types of romantic attention. I want to see them all pulling together and making mooses with that electric mixer. I also don't understand how out of Ivy and Daisy, Ivy is the desirable one. Right? Like. She looks like a foot. (laughs) Like, you know. There's something salvageable there, but like, like a com- really like the, she looks like a heel foot. <laughs> yeah, but comp- like no, but I mean she's got thing. no personality. Like yeah, I don't even exactly. know why she's there. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, in Mrs. Hughes's parlor, uh, she's filled Branson in on the whole witch situation. And Carson is there. And Carson is there, right? So Branson's like, well, you know, this is, I got us into this. I need to go confess to to get her out of here. But Carson's like, no. Uh, that, that she's already lost her, uh, McGee has. McG- yeah, McGee has already lost her daughter and her son-in-law, and now she can't learn that her other son-in-law was unworthy. 
Which, Carson, you need to check your facts, okay? This hoe <laughs> came up in here, kept putting herself in Branson's way, and look, a man, look, he was probably having some really undignified Catholic sex. <laughs> Speaking as a, you know, right. practitioner myself, I bet they were having a great time. No. You know, a man has needs. Well, Decorum, yeah. yes. And right. look, and I'm not, I'm sorry that I'm not holding Branson accountable, but yeah, she yeah, yeah. is, in fact, a witch. <laughs> right. And, was clearly the initiator and you know he was in a you know fog yeah, he, of grief look, yeah you're let mary do whatever the hell she wants when yeah she's, let isabel do whatever she wants branson's not allowed to grieve mm-hmm. anyway and i don't think it makes him unworthy right like he was a chauffeur yeah and like <sighs> in any case uh, also can we talk about how lord grantham is totally unworthy because he kissed jane yeah. Well, I know that nobody else knows about that. Anyway. But we I'm, know. I'm just saying, I don't like the way that Branson's character is being assassinated here. I agree. Uh, but in any case, uh, Carson says that they're just going to have to, you know, make the best of it. He says he trusts that Mr. Branson won't keep her in line or whatever. And Branson's like, of course. I've seen the light. Um, and he says that, you know, she's... She's obviously gotten this new training. He doesn't think that's a lie, so maybe she's decided to move into the real world. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Hughes, however, thinks it all sounds like a ticking bomb to her. We concur. Yes, which, uh, you know, showrunners love ticking bombs. They do, because then they go off. Right. And that equals ratings. <laughs> uh, upstairs in the hall, there are sounds of a grumpy baby, yeah. which McGee then goes to investigate, and then she sees Nanny Rosie Cheeks uh, rocking George and saying, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. Yeah. That chauffeur's daughter won't bother you anymore. Yeah. And then she goes over to Sibby's crib and says, go to sleep, you wicked little crossbreed. Yeah. Which, oh my God. Wow. We did not see this coming. No. And I loved it. Yeah. No. Look, yeah. again, Baron Julian yeah. can do it because maybe this is why she wasn't giving Sibby an egg. Right. Exactly. Like she was denying her, you know, uh, you know, ovine, yeah. not ovine, that sheep. Right. Uh, Anyway, yeah. <laughs> octo-lacto, ovo-lacto. Yes. That's what I'm thinking. Right. Ovum. Look, I was very bad Sh- at Latin. Chauffeur's daughters only get vegan food. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, McGee hears this and yeah. storms in, rings for Mrs. Hughes before she says anything, yeah. and fires Nanny Rosie Cheeks. Bam. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. She, then Mrs. Hughes comes in and Mrs. Hughes is like, oh, I thought Nanny Rosie Cheeks was ringing for me. And she's like, uh, no. You listen up, Mrs. Hughes. Nanny Rosie Cheeks is leaving tomorrow. Yeah. You need to make a bed and you get one of the maids in here to sit with the children. Yeah. Because, uh, again, Nanny Rosie Cheeks, not to be left alone with the children at any point. Yeah. And McGee says something about, I don't want to discuss it, only to say that your values have no place in any respectable home. Yeah. Because, boom. Yeah. Well, and not forgetting, I mean, technically speaking, McGee's own children are wicked little crossbreeds. Mm-hmm. They're not as wicked, but she's, you know, Jewish or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know. Yeah. And Sid well, is all she has left of, of Sybil. Sybil. Yeah. And I mean, not that, you know, I don't yeah, think McGee at no point, McGee is not the kind of grandma. I mean, clearly Lord Grantham has made his case known, but right. like, I think she genuinely loves both of those children equally. Yeah. And she thinks that they both deserve exactly the same chance to grow up. Yeah. Feeling mm-hmm. loved. Well, and, and like, I mean, Sibby's like, she's, she's like two. Yeah. Like, it lo- I mean, by the look of her, she's walking. Yeah. She's walking. Like she's 
getting to the point to where like, she can understand language. Yeah. Like that's well, even if she can't understand language, if yeah. this woman has been like manhandling her and like denying her things, it's like, yeah, babies pick up on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just like, wow. Like, cause, like up until this point, there was this like nanny Thomas battle. And it was like, I didn't, I mean, I didn't like the nanny particularly, yeah. but I didn't really have a strong sense of who was in the right and who wasn't. Exactly. But then, wow. Yeah. Well, and it's like, how much did Thomas know? Right. I mean, I don't think he could have. I don't think I he think could he have either. I think he was just up to typical Thomas right. schemery. Right, exactly. And it just, you know, stop clock is right twice a day or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As Thomas would well know. <laughs> That's right. Down in the library, Mary and Lord Grantham are discussing Edith and her, she's been spending a lot of time in London. And Mary says that she's been seeing that publisher is he? I don't know. Anyway, that guy. Um, you know the one. Right. The German one. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham asks about him, what Mary knows about him, and she says that, well, he's not bad looking and he's still alive, which is two points ahead of most men of our generation. Which, boom, yeah. Mary, you may be incredibly depressed, but your timing, mwah. Yeah. Like, you could have really held on in that, you know, Chinese laundryman joke. <laughs> Indeed. Lord Grantham still thinks that Edith can do better. Oh, you mean like Lord Anthony Strallen? <laughs> you mean like that? Yes. <sighs> I hate him. Agreed. And he asks, asks again about what Mary knows about him, and she says something about how he talked with Matthew a bit at Dunneagle, and then fades off and stares into space again. Uh, so Lord Grantham sends her to bed. Uh, says she looks done in. Uh, Mary asks about the tenant luncheon and says she has some ideas for it, but Lord Grantham's like, no, 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 uh, you know, I, I, you shouldn't bother yourself with that. I know I'm right. Anytime that Lord Grantham says he's right, A, we should all take a drink. <laughs> right. And B, everyone on the show should be like, you know what? I was inclined to agree with you, but your <laughs> conviction has made me question my own. Yeah. He's like, no, I know I'm right. I asked ISIS. She agrees. <laughs> <laughs> she's in this scene by yes, the way indeed. this is the only isis sighting of the episode right. she may have been running around with him and branson but i don't think I so i don't think so i don't think he would have let isis around no branson. I, I remember that there was a dog but i it, i think it was a, a lower class dog also remember when branson was an irish revolutionary <laughs> uh he clearly doesn't <laughs> oh a lot of crap has happened on this show <laughs> um so mary heads up to bed but halfway up the stairs, she stops. And she turns around and she heads down to the Carson cave. <gasps> That's right. She says, I think you know why I'm here. I've come to apologize. And Carson's like, oh, there's no need to apologize. I, you know, was impertinent or whatever he says. And she says, no, that that he was right. Uh, and he says, so I take it this means you want to return to the land of the living. And she says, I've spent too long in the land of the dead. And then just breaks down and nobody cries like michelle dockery yeah oh like just so good yeah because it's like she can't she's like well because no because he says we all were very fond of mr right, matthew right, yeah and then it sounds to me like she was about to say i loved him yeah and she can't even get the words out and yeah. just dissolves and then yeah. he comes over you guys i can't even talk about this yeah yeah wow. but uh he hugs her and cries oh god yeah we all cry yeah we all cry. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. No, because she, like, she can't reach out for anybody. She can't, like, she's just, like, standing as still as uh -huh. she can and just, like, losing. Well, and I just, I want, like, has she cried at all? Right. Like, it's, it's not clear. It's not clear. Like, I'm like, maybe you guys could have helped her, like, through the grieving process. And, like, you know, if you need to cry, 
You can do that. Oh, like, right. that's totally normal for your... But so she must have cried at the funeral or something. Anyway, think. I don't know. Yeah, we, you know, we, we don't know. We can't possibly And know. never will. Nope. Yeah. Thanks, Julian Fellows. <laughs> for not showing us the thing. <laughs> As always. Yeah. Uh, in any case, Carson tells her he's like you're you're gonna be fine you can do this i know that you were strong enough for the task and she says that she can always count on him for a draft of self-confidence and he says and you always will and it's it's great we always love and mary and carson make up we do mrs hughes is in her parlor no no doubt uh drawing up her meddling schedule for the following (laughs) day uh there's a ruckus in the kitchen there's a bowl broken on the floor, and Mrs. Patmore has had a mixer mishap. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mrs. Hughes tells Mrs. Patmore she should let Daisy and Ivy clean it up the next day, and then right. Mrs. Hughes, and then Mrs. Patmore flips out and is like, "No, no, then Daisy will know that I can't use it." And Mrs. Hughes is like, "Who cares?" And Mrs. Patmore's like, "I care because it means Daisy's part of the future, and I'm stuck in the past." Yeah. And so then Mrs. Hughes says to give her an apron; she'll help her clean it up. And then she's just saying, "Oh, what a day." Uh, you know, Nanny West has been sacked. And Mrs. Patmore's like, I never liked her. <laughs> and Mrs. Hughes is like, well, it's not my place to have an opinion. But I will say in a minute. Uh, yeah. Uh, more, that, like, yeah. again, if we had less of dumb love quadrangle, right. we could have more Mrs. Hughes and Mrs. Patmore being BFFs. That's right. Cleaning messes up. You know, playing wingman. Ah. Yeah. Here, I mean, here. I know this is already in the bag. <laughs> yeah. But Baron Fellows, if you're listening. You know. At or some point in seasons 5 through 12. Or I'm sorry, not eyelid, eyeliner. Yeah. Eyeliner. Take a note. <laughs> it is the morning. A uh, shipment of flowers is arriving at Downton, which, by the way, I like the taste of flowers in Downton. They have a like really the, great taste in flowers. It's all yellow and purple. I mean, unsurprisingly, it's a purple estate. McGee and Lord Grantham encounter each other in the entrance hall. Apparently, the previous night, somehow, they never... They didn't cross paths. Well, because she was sitting up with uh, the babies mm. and ensuring that that whole, you know, thing went smoothly. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, he was busy thinking about Mary not being capable of doing anything. Right. Uh, and so McGee tells Lord Grantham that they owe a great debt of gratitude to Barrow here. He happens to be in the hall. And that Miss West turned out to be entirely unsuitable and she is getting fired. Bates is also there. He took Lord Grantham's coat and whatever and just kind of frowns at everybody. And it's a little odd to me. I mean, I guess it's just he figures that Thomas has been up to something, which is technically true. Yes. Well, and he just doesn't know the situation. Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, if Lord Grantham didn't know that Nanny West had been sacked, this is likely the first that even Bates has heard of it. Right. No, that's that's true. And then mcgee also says and you know i meant that barrow where really thank you and he says thank you i thought that she wasn't all sir garnet we don't know what that means uh i guess it means she wasn't all right yeah like she wasn't all what you know she needed to be or whatever but Mm -hmm. just odd so we cut to a bunch of men sitting around a table having manly discussions about land and horses and all that jazz (laughs) Uh, and Mary arrives wearing a lavender-colored dress, mm-hmm. and everyone stands up. Mary apologizes for her lateness, uh, and they all say it's fine. They haven't even started eating yet. Yeah, yeah. And Branson insists that she sit in his place, which would be, you know, a place of some honor, presumably. Right. Well, it looks like across, like her and Lord Grantham are sitting mm-hmm. at the center of the table yes. across from each other. So uh, she says she can sit at the end, and, and Carson will get her a chair. But Branson says, no, this is your place. Yeah. And so then uh, she sits down. You know, presumably to Lord Grantham's chagrin, but then, you know, she, but I mean, it's, 
impossible to convey in words the marked difference between the Mary we saw yeah. when Grantham send to bed and this Mary. Yeah. She sits down and she says she's been look- looking forward to the luncheon and she asks Mr. Taylor, what's all this I hear about your giving up sheep? And, you know, it's just great. Yeah. Uplifting music. Ah, yeah. we're back, everybody. We're back. We're back. Yeah. And all, like, all the tenants are also just so pleased to see mm-hmm. her. Well, because presumably it's been the talk of the yeah. town yeah. that she's, you know, been prostrate with grief yeah and uh that brings us folks that's right back again it's time for the abby awards oh wow i know it's very exciting it's been so long uh so the first award is best evasion Mm -hmm. we uh we had some options we did we did have some options but we decided that uh carson wins that's right for having evaded seeing grig at all that's right in this episode completely just yeah not once that's right Next, we go on to Best Overbite. Uh, and this one, uh, not as much competition, so we're giving this one to Lady Shackleton. There may be some residual overbite bleed from having watched <laughs> Sense and Sensibility last night. Right. Which right. is one of the most overbitey instances of an overbite we've ever seen. Indeed. Committed to film or television. Sort of a, a lifetime achievement in overbiting. Indeed. Uh, worst decision... Uh, gotta go with Nanny West. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't call one of the two children you're charged with a wicked little crossbreed. Right. Like, it's their house. Yeah. It's like, their house. Like, that wicked little crossbreed is essentially your employer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, next we have, uh, an award that was a one-off award when we last awarded it. We, we felt that we weren't going to make it a regular thing. But, uh, I guess we are. And it is cutest baby. Yeah, we would like to renege on our previous statement that we are not monsters who will pit baby against baby. <laughs> we we are monsters. We are monsters, and, we and win. uh, George wins <laughs> in this one. We wanted to give it to Sivvy because yeah. of the trauma she had suffered. Right. But that didn't quite work out. Yeah. Uh, next, we have the Gibson girl for the best-dressed person mm-hmm. in the episode. Edith, hands down. Yeah. I mean, look, the coat at the train station, I was like, that's the clincher. Yeah. But then when she wore that peacock gown, I was like, what's another word for clincher? Because this <laughs> is it. Yeah. Like, uh, we're we're loving a lot of what's going on, like, in this episode. Yeah. You know, and, and Rose is definitely going to be in there at other times. You know, I think it will be interesting to see once Rose gets to London, where presumably True, she will. True, because she is point. wearing her, like, frumpy, right. you know, weeds. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Mary is back in play. I'm curious to see what McGee's cooking up. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. Yeah. There's going to be some new female characters, some new yeah. male characters. Yeah. Uh, it's, Anything it's, could happen. It's going to be a Gibson good time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which brings us, of course, to the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. the Backy. Uh, which is a tougher competition this year, uh, but in this episode, it was pretty clearly uh, Mary. A.K.A. the goth princess light. I mean, <laughs> right. once we had come up with that phrase, <laughs> there were no other contenders. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and then finally, everyone's favorite award, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's. Yes. We're giving it a four. We're giving it a four. She was in fine and form. And let me actually... Let's take a quick moment to recap what this award is. That is a really great idea. Uh, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's is when we rate Maggie Smith's performance on the only scale on which Maggie Smith can be rated, the scale of herself. Yes, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. It goes from one Maggie Smith to five Maggie Smiths. One Maggie Smith is like a sleeping Maggie Smith. Right. Or like an uncredited cameo Maggie Smith. <laughs> right. And five is like balls to the walls. Yeah. Sassing it up, Maggie Smith. Exactly. So, like, that's the scale. Right. So, this episode, we're going with a four. Indeed. Uh, 
mainly because of that crack about the Chinese laundry. Yeah, that was pretty. It much just it, it didn't it, really work. Yeah. Well, but you know, she didn't. I didn't feel like she had a very. She didn't finish strong. That was her. Yeah. Well, that wasn't even her finish. But like she, you know, she was coming off this height with like that scene with Mary. Yeah, I mean the scene with and Mary I mean, was she fantastic. Herself well in the in the Molesley luncheon. Look, yeah. Had she gotten Molesley the job? Yeah, that might that might. And she would have had a Bon Mott at the end there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Anyway. You know, not bad, not great. Yeah. I think this is pretty much where she ended the last series. Yeah, I so think she's that's true. you know, she's on par with herself. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Uh yeah. So that's been our recap of Downton Abbey series four, episode one. That's right. We've had a great time. We have. We hope you've also had a great time. Please stay in touch. Mm-hmm. Let us know what you like, what you hate, and we are really excited to be uh covering this with all of you again. Absolutely. So until next time. Up yours downstairs, downstairs. luncheon out.